I grab one now? <laughs> Good afternoon. I now call the June 20, 2023 regular meeting of the Municipal Transportation Agency Board of Directors and Parking Authority Commission to order. Good afternoon, directors, staff, and members of the public. We thank you for joining us. This meeting is being held in hybrid format, occurring in person at City Hall, room 400, broadcast live on SFGov TV and by phone. Please note that beginning March 1, there was a full sunset of the emergency order provisions that suspended certain local meeting laws and a time limit, and a time limit of 10 minutes of remote public comment on each action or, or discussion item has been set and noticed for this meeting. The phone number to use is 415-655-0001, access code 2590-104-8976. When the item is called, dial star 3 to enter the queue. Commenters will have up to two minutes to provide comment unless otherwise noted by the chair. Please speak clearly, ensure you're in a quiet location, and turn off any TVs or computers around you. We thank you for your cooperation. Places you on item 2. Roll call. Director Hemminger. Here. Hemminger present. Director Hinzi. Present. Hinzi, present. Director Yukutiel. Here. Yukutiel, present. Director Kahina. Here. Kahina, present. Director Ikin is not expected at today's meeting. Um, however, you do have a quorum. And for the record, I note that Director Hinzi is attending this meeting remotely. Director Hinzi is reminded that she must appear on camera throughout the meeting and in order to speak or vote on any items. Places you on item number three. The ringing and use of cell phones and similar sound producing electronic devices are prohibited at this meeting. The chair may order the removal from the meeting room any person responsible for the ringing or use of a cell phone or other similar sound producing electronic devices. Places you on item number four, approval of minutes for the June 6 regular meeting. Colleagues, are there any changes to the June 6 minutes? Secretary Silva, is Director Hinzi okay? Yeah. Great, we'll now open public comment for those attending the meeting in person. Any members of the public wishing to comment on this item, go ahead and approach the podium. And this relates to the meeting minutes on June 6. No worries. <laughs> All right, Secretary Silva, please go to remote public comment, please. At this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. We have no callers. Thank you. We'll I'll move the item. Move Second. It. Second. All right. Call the item. Okay. Very good. On the motion to approve the minutes, Director Hemminger. Aye. Hemminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Thank you. The minutes are approved. Next item. Item five, communications. Directors, I did want to share one announcement. At your last meeting during the director's report, we shared about an upcoming special meeting on June 27 to act on a set of side letter agreements. Um, that meeting, that special meeting is now scheduled and noticed for Friday, June 30 at 10 a.m. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Directors, are there any other communications? Seeing none, <laughs> we'll now open public comment for those attending the meeting in person. I don't see anyone lining up, so Secretary Silva, please go to remote public comment, please. Sure. At, uh, at this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public can dial star three to enter the queue, and we have no callers. Great. We'll now close public comment. Secretary Silva, please call the next item. 
Item number six, introduction of new or unfinished business by board members. Colleagues, is there any new or unfinished business? Director DiCudio. Thank you so much, Acting Chair Kahina. <laughs> um, I just wanted to acknowledge that it is Pride Month, and I was thinking about it as I got here earlier. Um, it's not lost on me. Uh, the importance of serving in a public way as a practicing homosexual uh, here in room 400 and beyond. And I remember 13 years ago uh, around Pride Weekend when I stood in a pink tutu and raised money for same-sex marriage a couple hundred feet away from this building uh, on the Sunday of Pride, still in the closet uh, back home and wondering what my future in the city would hold. And so I just wanted to acknowledge Pride um, acknowledge how important it is today as it was before and that people are coming out every single day. There might be people in this room that are planning to come out and haven't yet. And so it is a week of courage and a week of um, emotion and a week of celebration. And so I'm very thankful to be serving in this public capacity and to be out uh, and to be in this town where someone like me can sit up here and try to serve my city as much as I can in this capacity. So I want to say happy pride to everyone in this room and everyone in particular that serves for our incredible agency. And um, I want to thank my colleagues for serving with me and for celebrating pride alongside me. Thank you, Director. Colleagues, any other new business? Director Hinsey? No, I'm all right. Thank Excellent. you. Thank you, Director. <laughs> we'll now open public comment for those attending the meeting in person on this item. Um, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Chair. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say your name, so I'm not going to even. It's okay, it's Kahina. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, Alita Dupree, for the record, my pronouns are she and her. I feel the need to speak. Uh, I, I, too, feel the importance of pride. Uh, I, I'm 57, and I've come a long journey. I can't say I've ever worn a, a tutu. Um, I, I do like wearing a skirt, uh, especially a skirt with folds. Uh, perhaps I'll tell you more about that some other time. Uh, don't know if I'm going to be here during Pride Weekend. I, I don't take crowds too good. Uh, but I do feel it is important that we continue to emphasize this Pride mindset year-round. It, it is not just about specific communities, but I believe, knowing it myself, that Pride transcends definitions. How do we build a, a muni that is truly uh, for everyone. Um, I, I wrote it a few times and um, it's been fine, um, but I feel that it is essential to promote the mindset of inclusion all uh, about, um, uh, all, all over our, our system, not just here in this boardroom, but on the front line. If somebody were say, well, what do I practice? Uh, well, well, I do practice riding Muni. Uh, I, I practice using my Clipper card. And when I go to New York City, I ride subway trains. And I do all that wearing a skirt. Uh, so, so I thank you. The work must not stop. And happy Pride every day.
Thank you. Thank you so much for your comment, Mr. Pree. Secretary Silva, are there any more um, comments or in-person public comment on this item? Perfect, let's go to remote public comment, please. At this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. See no speakers. Thank you, Secretary Silva. We'll now close public comment. Um, can you please call the next item? Places you on item number seven, the director's report. Good afternoon, board members. Uh, Jeff Tumlin, your executive director, and I've got a couple big items and a whole bunch of small items. Uh, let's start with the most important, which is state budget update. Uh, last week on Monday, the California legislature passed its budget, which includes a proposal to restore $2 billion that the governor cut from the Transit Intercity Rail Capital Program funds. Uh, unfortunately, none of that $2 billion would come to Muni since it had already been allocated by MTC. However, uh, the state uh, legislature is proposing an additional $1.1 billion in cap-and-trade funding that would be able to be flexed to transit operations, uh, along with about an additional $200 million in active transportation funding. Um, we are very grateful for this support and consider it a very positive step towards uh, being able to sustain transit operations. Um, we're particularly grateful for the um, Bay Area delegation, the mayor, the board of supervisors, and the many advocates who fought to get us this far. Negotiations are still underway with the governor, uh, who has until June 30th to finalize the state budget. The details are still being worked out, so the deal um, is still uncertain. Um, but I wanted to make sure that you all understood what this means for us. So while this is a very positive step, it covers just one-third of what we need in order to avoid significant service cuts in the coming years. Um, it's quite important, and perhaps the best thing about this proposal is that it covers uh, transit funding for three years. As you know, I made a promise back at the beginning of COVID that I would not balance our budget on the backs of our workforce who got San Francisco through the worst of the pandemic. And so having funding for three years still gives us a glide path for um, if we can't identify the remaining funding that we'll still be able to shrink through attrition rather than through layoffs. This has been very um, important to me. But we still have a lot of work to do to uh, get the additional two-thirds uh, of the funding that we need in order to just sustain where we're at. And so that means, uh, number one, keeping a very close, hand, uh, tight hand on the, on the hiring throttle. So if the funding news gets better, we can accelerate hi hiring, and if the funding news gets worse, we can slow hiring down. Right now, we're kind of at about holding things steady. So we're continuing to hire, but only hiring the most critical positions as we wait for additional news. This funding uh, also comes with um, some assumptions uh, that were part of the negotiations with the legislature. Uh, it assumes that we will indefinitely postpone any additional muni service restoration. So this assumes we're gonna stay at about a 20% service hour cut relative to 2019. 
it also assumes that we will be able to move forward with enforcement of parking meters on Sundays and on evenings. That brings in about 15 million, or the equivalent of about three muni lines. In the meantime, we are continuing to get as efficient as we can be. We're continuing to move forward on speed and reliability enhancements for Muni, uh, because as you know, a 15% reduction in delay equals 15% more service and capacity for free. Um, and uh, our attention will be turning towards the region, which is expected to come up with some additional funding in order to help match this state funding. Um, we are also grateful to the Senate pro tem uh, President Tony Atkins, um, spend, uh, Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, Budget Chairs Assembly Member Ting and Senator Skinner, um, and State Senator Scott Weiner uh, for his leadership throughout this process. Um, the next news is with the Central Subway. Uh, Back in January, we had an incident in the Central Subway where a part that connects the overhead wire to the structural support that hangs from the ceiling of the Central Subway, that tiny little part failed. It's called a spool insulator, and it's designed both to connect things together, but also to make sure that no straight current comes from the wire into the structural support. Um, we are uh, fortunate that all of our parts are under warranty, and the SFMTA staff uh, following this incident did a very, very detailed inspection of the spool insulators throughout the system and has identified that it was perhaps not specced properly, um, and a lot of them will need to be replaced. Um, and again, th that replacement cost will be covered uh, by our contractor. Um, our team uh, is intending to hold the contractor fully accountable uh, for this situation. Uh, it's a low-cost repair, but we have to shut down the subway in order to replace all of them. Plus, we don't have the 540 of them that may be needed uh, in order to do all of that work now. So we're ordering the parts. The parts will probably take between six to nine months to arrive. And in the meantime, we'll be working with Chinatown, Union Square, um, and Yerba Buena community stakeholders to figure out what is the least impactful way of replacing those parts, to spread it out over time, to do a weekend shutdown and do them all at once. We don't really know until we um, hear from the community. Uh, but again, our team at the SFMTA is continuing to inspect every single detail of the central subway to make sure uh, that everything was installed properly and specced to the quality standards that we expect and to hold our contractors accountable. Uh, next up, and we've got some images here. Uh, we uh, have started at the beginning of the celebration of the 150th anniversary of our cable cars, which officially um, happens in August. Uh, but we kicked off the festivities uh, not only with Mayor London Breed, <clears throat> but also with Andrew Halliday himself, inventor of the cable car, a great San Franciscan who failed at gold mining but became very successful in inventing new ways to produce wire rope and then applying um, or handling uh, transport technologies to human transport here in San Francisco uh, to open up the hills of San Francisco to real estate development. Um, so what you see behind you there is uh, our oldest surviving cable car, um, Big 19, which is going back into service on the California line um, every Saturday throughout the summer. 
in partnership with Market Street Railway and a variety of community-based organizations. We're also um, offering tours of the Muni shop where the cable cars are built and restored. Um, we're having history-themed tours uh, of the cable car lines. We've introduced a special $5 all-day pass for the California uh, Street cable car line, which is in addition to the $13 all-day pass for all of Muni and all of the cable car lines. Uh, as always, uh, we are very proud uh, to be host hosting uh, one of the uh, only rolling historic landmarks in the world and uh, one of San Francisco's uh, greatest tourist attractions as well as sources of local pride, um, the San Francisco Cable Car System. Uh, for more information, you can go to sfmta.com slash cablecars150 or cablecars.org. Um, next up, uh, Soma Slow Streets Murals. Um, streets of Soma got a little bit brighter um, this last week. Um, we have been working in partnership with the San Francisco Parks Alliance to encourage community-based art on all of our slow streets around the city, and the Soma Slow Streets were the uh, first to get street murals, um, and we hope to be able to bring you some photos uh, later in the summer of additional work um, that will be forthcoming. Uh, next up, we've got the June, Juneteenth Parade. Um, the SFMTA um, and its black and African-American affinity group uh, led our contingent in the Saturday parade. Uh, many of us also participated in the local neighborhood festivals on the waterfront in Bayview and in the Western Edition on Fillmore Street uh, in honor uh, and commemoration of Juneteenth this last weekend. Uh, next up, we've got Pride as well, which Director Kudiel always uh, mentioned, already mentioned. Uh, of course, uh, Civic Center is already starting to get closed off in preparation for this weekend's festivities. Uh, we will be working all channels and keeping all of our staff busy with traffic reroutes um, in honor of all of the community events that will be happening um, this weekend, starting with Trans March on Friday evening at 6, Dyke March on Saturday at 5 p.m., and the Pride Parade on Sunday starting at 10.30 a.m. Uh, I will be uh, out there marching along with a lot of uh, SFMTA staff uh, and together with the San Francisco Health Department. Um, next up, I wanted to let you know that we uh, and our communication staff, uh, specifically led by M Melissa Kulras, uh, launched our SFMTA podcast for the first time. It is called Taken with Transportation. The first episode focused on my favorite bus line, which is the 22 Fillmore. And you can learn more at sfmta.com slash podcast. And finally, I wanted to let you know that tomorrow, June 21st, is the first ever MuniSafe Day Out uh, that will be running from 9 a.m. until noon. This is an event intended to build public awareness about safety and security on Muni. We have staff volunteers from throughout the agencies that will be posting signs at bus stops, talking to customers, and handing out information uh, about safety in general, and particularly how to report harassment and stop harassment on Muni. Safety, of course, is our top concern for uh, both our customers and staff, and it remains a number one priority for all of us at the SFMTA. That is my report. Thank you, Director Tumlin. Colleagues, Director Heminger. 
Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to go back to the state uh, bailout, and I, I, I'm going to ask a series of questions that each probably are built on an assumption. So let, let's be clear about what, what those assumptions are. Um, and then maybe I can get a better understanding of where we stand in relation to our earlier forecast, which was, as I recall, 130 million in Correct. FY25. And you've indicated to us previously that if we were able to pull off the parking changes, the meter changes that we're talking about, that takes that number down to about 100? Uh, that, in addition to uh, postponing our planned service expansion. Okay. So the parking meter changes are about 15. The rest of the savings bringing us from 100 down to, or from 130 down to 100. Um, are the postponing of the remaining planned service expansion that we have. And both of those actions are within our purview to decide whether to do them or not. That is correct. Okay. Um, so the state comes in and an assumption here is that we're going to end up with close to a billion one. Um, maybe we won't. Uh, do we have any intelligence from the administration, from the governor's office about what he might do? Uh, so far, no one I have talked to has a sense of what the governor will do or what the governor's priorities are. And if he does something that materially changes the deal, then we've got to go back to the legislature again? Um, if he materially changes the deal, there's the possibility of doing additional trailer bills right. later in the year, uh, particularly given the fact that... Um, uh, personal income taxes are due so late this year that there's the possibility that there may be additional state revenue that is available to expend. Okay. So assuming that we end up close to that billion one, um, is there anything in the agreement that talks about how that will be allocated among the regions of the state? Not yet, to my knowledge. So the presumption from our conversations with the state legislature are that that would be allocated based upon the STA formulas to the major, uh, to, the, to the metropolitan planning organizations, or for us specifically to MTC. And then MTC would distribute that money based upon need, but to my knowledge, that is not written anywhere. And our government affairs people in the audience are nodding their head. Well, and th that formula, as I recall, has a revenue and a population basis that when you mush them together, the Bay Area ends up getting... About 20%. I think it's higher than that, actually. Um, isn't it about 30, Kate? Okay. So... Uh, then of that 400, we have to figure out how to allocate that within the Bay Area. Correct. And that's where we come in. That's right. Um, and uh, do you have a, any sense of from MTC about what they would do, what, what procedure they would follow? So again, none of this is written down anywhere. Uh, but in our conversations with them, they are eager to distribute it based upon uh, fiscal cliff need. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at the staff level is nail down exactly what that means. I bet you are. <laughs> uh, well, can you share any of your thinking on that subject now? Well, so we have all... I mean, we had uh, several rounds of allocations that's right. of federal bailout funds, and 
didn't we sort of end up in a, in a, in a way of, of approaching it that had some consensus in the region, or we just have to do this all over again now? This distribution will be different than the federal relief distribution. So for the federal relief distribution, every agency got a piece of the pie. Right. Uh, and while need was a factor, it was not the primary factor. For this round of relief, there is, I think, a greater realization that need needs to be the primary factor for you know, for agencies where additional need, additional funding will, um, is what makes the difference between needing to have drastic service cuts versus being able to stay stable. And for most agencies in the region, they're at a point of stability. BART is the least stable at the moment. And then the other agencies that have been largely dependent upon <clears throat> downtown San Francisco commuter fares, right, Muni, AC Transit, Caltrain and Golden Gate uh, would be the other agencies with significant But an needs. entirely needs-based approach would be a, a deviation from what Correct. MTC has done to date. So that's probably going to involve an argument or two. Um, maybe just assuming that we're going to get some kind of average of what we've gotten before. Do you know what that average was? Um, it will, we're confident that it will not be an average of what we've gotten before. This is a very different formula that is being discussed that right. is truly based upon need. So the, the starting place for the argument is the need numbers that we have submitted to MTC over the last couple of weeks. And Jonathan Ruers or Bream Horder might be able to remember what those numbers are. Well, and maybe just to do the math, just to cut to the chase, uh, if it's 400 million coming to the Bay Area, mm -hmm. um, and we were to get 25% of it, that's 100, and that's that covers your bogey for one year. For right? one year, but what we're wanting to do, and what the state is wanting to do, is to spread this money out over three years, mm -hmm. so it covers roughly a third, rather than 100%. So that creates a shortfall every one of those years, and you're hoping again to address it by attrition, not by layoff and to address it through reallocating other regional funding, as well as pursuing other revenue sources like Sunday and evening meters. Okay, and those discussions are just starting. Correct. Got it, and I assume regional money is bridge tolls? That is one of the items under discussion. Okay, thank you very much, Madam Chair. Thank you, colleagues, any other comments? No. We're going to open this up to public comment now. And just a reminder, this is public comment on the director's report. Hello, director, commissioners. Uh, my name is Rex Ridgeway. I am the president of the PTSA at Lincoln High School, also ex um, vice chair of its school side council. So I'm here today to... Uh, ask that as you're looking at scaling back on services and perhaps bus cuts, uh, the kids already have a problem getting to school on time. Um, it's always been a problem. So for instance, the 29, the 28, the 44, that connects to the 48. You have kids coming from the southeast side on the 44 connecting to getting to buses on to Washington and Lincoln. And I personally took the 48 for myself just to see how it was. 
and it is like a sardine can. So uh, just imagine if you're cutting back on certain, it's like the 29, it's 29 services, uh, Sally Burton, it services Lowell, it services uh, California State. So as you're looking at the map and you're looking at your um, bus lines, uh, we are really concerned that when school starts, if there's any cutback in service or lines, it's really just gonna cause again, uh, um, the result would be more tardiness, uh, kids would, t I, I talked to a parent yesterday that their, their kids taking Uber because they, they, they need to be on time. So, you know, they're taking Uber to class and, uh, and families, of course, without uh, transportation depends on the buses. So um, in, in closing, as uh, there's a saying that goes, uh, money answers all things. Unfortunately, we don't have enough to, to spread. So, but I applaud you guys and, and please just keep us in mind. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comment, Director Tumlin. Um, yes, Mr. Rexer, I just wanted to let you know that uh, we hear your concern and we share it. Um, despite the financial problems that we're facing, we are committed to reallocating community services needed um, in order to address some of those severe crowding problems. Uh, I experienced those situations directly myself, uh, and we've been working uh, on the 48 and the 29 and 43 and others where we get school-related crowding in order to try to reallocate resources from elsewhere in the city in order to make sure that kids can get to school on time. Hi, I'm uh Sam Wolf, I'm a rising uh, senior at Lick Wilmerding, and uh, similar to uh, you know what Rex was saying about uh, lines that service schools, I've ridden the 29 uh, uh, for about five years. I've taken it to APG all three years. I take it to Lick Wilmerding now, and uh, in addition, I would like to you know, kind of say that I've also experienced some of those um, crowding problems as well, kind of, uh, some, this, this doesn't happen often, but occasionally, like, especially when I'm going back from school, the line, uh, it might pass me by because it's, uh, too crowded. I mean, it's, it picks up people from, you know, like Balboa and, uh, City College and, you know, a lot of places. Um, and even though I'm not necessarily going to be the most affected by, uh, those, um, um, by those dynamics, uh, it does uh, it does affect others, and I think in many in many cases, like perhaps like increasing additional um, service to the most important school lines uh, would be uh, perhaps could be a good use of uh, resources. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. Great to see a fellow tiger up here. Um, Ms. Dupree. Um, thanks again uh, to Chair uh, Alita Dupree for the record. She and her uh, always enjoy Jeff's reports, very credible and meaningful. And uh, I've been to the Cable Car Museum myself uh, a number of times. So it's important that we highlight uh, our cable car system, which I haven't been in a while and I didn't see any out there today. I saw buses, so I don't know if I'd have to pay the cable car fee to ride those. Yes, I can ask. Um, and, of course, I enjoyed seeing those photos of pride and 
flags on the cable cars and uh, we'll be out there this weekend. And how do we get the money from the state uh, uh, to keep our system going? And I say we don't want to balance our budget on the backs of the riders. Don't want to uh, resort to high fare increases like what's going to be happening at BART uh, very soon. I think it's going up five and a half percent. So how do we go to the state? Uh, in New York, our friendly neighbor to the east, uh, they did come up with a funding plan uh, to uh, help to keep uh, public transportation in New York City operating, uh, which includes a legendary and historic rail system called the subway. Uh, perhaps maybe some of you gotten to see it or even uh, use it. Uh, but, but they went to Albany, uh, the capital of New York. It's not New York City, it is Albany. I'm sure you've probably known that since elementary school. But they, they went to Albany and, and cut a deal, and uh, their governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, uh, if you haven't heard of her, uh, really did a lot of good work in helping to keep that going. So how can we do that here in California, where you don't have that history of transit in New York? I ask you to keep working for money from Muni. Thank you. Thank you for your comment, Mr. Pree. Um, Director Tomlin, I had a clarifying question. Um, we do have a project right now that is helping shape um, improvements on the 29. Um, how do folks that, especially the folks who are here today to give comment, how do they get up updated on those projects? Yes, thank you for the question. Uh, the 29 sunset is the longest daytime line in San Francisco and therefore uh, one of our least reliable. And as you know, just at our last board meeting, you all approved moving forward on the 29 sunset improvement project. Uh, if you go to our website and search for 29 sunset improvement project, uh, there's a link right at the top where you can click to sign up for updates on that project. Uh, we're hoping to move forward with some of that work uh, later this year uh, in order to help improve reliability and then as we have resources, um, continue upgrading the line um, and improving its frequency as well. Thank you, Director. Any more public comments? Seeing none, um, Secretary Silva, please open um, online public comment. At this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. We have no speakers. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Please call the next item. Places you on item number eight, the Citizens Advisory Council report. We have no report. Uh, item number nine, uh, general public comment. Members of the public may address the Board of Directors on matters that are within the Board's jurisdiction but are not on today's agenda. We will now open public comment for those attending the meeting in person for matters not on the agenda. Hi, my name is Jordan Smith. On November 15, 2022, I came in here and I enacted the uh, Sunshine Act. Uh, about my RV that was towed, uh, violating, where you guys towed it, violating your own policy. Um, I have yet to hear anything back. Uh, I don't, I haven't gotten any emails, no phone calls. I've left all my contact information with you. It's been a long time. Um, 
if you can give me some idea of maybe an office I can call or visit or something where I can find something out, whether rather than just being left in the dark, it'd be very helpful. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I got for that. And then something that I noticed when I was driving, I thought maybe I should bring to your guys' attention. Uh, when you're traveling down south on Gough and you go down and you go to turn left on 13th, it's a left turn arrow with a walk symbol so the pedestrians can walk. And it's kind of like I was turning left. And this guy's walking. He's like, I got a walk symbol. And I'm like, almost hit him. I thought maybe you guys should kind of fix that. But um, those are the only two things. So, Thank you for your comment. Director Tillman, can you provide some clarification on Sunshine Ordinance and the process that folks what, I can actually the expectation? Um, connect with the individual um, and get the contact information so we can respond to a request, record request. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Secretary Silva will be in contact with you. Mr. Pree. Chair Kahina? Kahina, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was letting some other people go ahead of me. Um, you know, it, it's good to be back in this room. Uh, it, it's not easy uh, being here. Uh, I have disabilities. Uh, I have a reduced fare clipper card. Uh, just got a new one today. Good for another five years. But, but how do we build the best Muni? I can only share my experiences. I, I know them. Uh, where I was fortunate to have been shown public transportation uh, by my elders who took me to the New York City subway in 1970, I believe to 34th Street and 8th Avenue. And I don't remember it very well, hardly, but I wanted more. Well, I'm not in New York right now, but I get to write uh, Muni and Bart and all these other systems. Uh, but, but I ask of you to remember the importance of public transportation, especially those of us who, who are different. Uh, there is a person who works for Muni who will not, who I, I will not name, but uh, we had a good conversation and as we were parting ways, this person said to me, you are welcome on Muni. Well, well that, that meant a lot to me. How can we make sure that every day uh, we practice that? Because, because I try to bring you positive energy to these meetings, and maybe I'll write you some, some letters uh, and send some photographs in them. Uh, you know, I, I have my experience. I'm not from here originally, uh, but, but I have uh, the subway in New York uh, and, and Grand Central Terminal, a place where I discovered things bigger than, than myself. And I don't know if any of you have gotten to see that famous railroad station, but uh, I encourage you to, because public transportation is meaningful around the world. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pree. Uh, hello, my name is Brian. Uh, I live in uh, close to Valencia Street, and I just wanted to sincerely thank the director and the board uh, for the new uh, bike lanes between uh, 23rd and 19th. Uh, the traffic calming uh, effects of that are sincerely felt. And I am always like, if, if you ask around, I'm always messed up on Valencia. And, and it's very, 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 very important to me that we, we, call, we calm that, street, that uh, street. And I know it's been tough 
I know a lot of people have opinions about a bike lane that's in the middle of the lane, but I think it's working, and I want to send my sincere thanks to everyone, everyone who has who played, played a role in that. Thank you. Thank you for your comment, Brian. Any more public comment? Secretary Silva, let's open up a remote public comment, please. At this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. We have no speakers. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Um, we will now close public comment on item nine. Secretary Silva, please call the next item. Directors, that places you on item 10, consent calendar. These items are considered to be routine and will be acted upon by a single vote unless a member of the board or public wishes to consider an item separately. For all speakers providing public comment, please identify which item number you are speaking to. Item 10.1, requesting the controller to allot funds and to draw warrants against such funds available or will be available in payment of the uh, claim A in the agenda against the SFMTA. Item 10.2, authorizing the director or, or his designee to execute and file a claim anticipated to be approximately $200 million, subject to finalization of the state budget and unforeseen economic volatility with the Metropolitan Transportation Commission for allocation of operating assistance from Transportation Development Act, State Transit Assistance, Assembly Bill 1107 BART District Sales Tax, and Regional Measure 2 funds for fiscal year 2024 to support the operating budget. Directors for this item, I was made aware of a typo in the resolution and would like to request an amendment to the resolution to correct the seventh whereas clause to strike notes that appear in uh, parentheses. That whereas clause would now read, whereas MTC has determined that the SFMTA complies with the requirements of Public Utilities Code Section 29142.5 and Government Code Section 66517.5. Item 10.3 authorizing the SFMTA to receive state funding from the ac Access for All program, a program established by the California Public Utilities Commission and serve as the local access fund administrator in San Francisco County to expand and distribute the funds on a competitive basis to accessible transportation providers that provide on-demand transportation programs or partnerships to meet the needs of persons with disabilities, including wheelchair users who need a wheelchair accessible vehicle and authorizing the director to execute all requirements, required documents for the SFMTA to serve as the local access fund administrator and any amendments thereto with the commission. Item 10.4, authorizing the director to approve contract number SFMTA 2022-68 with more EO, Iacofano Goldsman, MIG, to provide as-needed professional services with a firm experienced in communications, marketing, and public outreach to raise awareness of and, ex and support for the SFMTA's Vision Zero policy and other SFMTA-related programs for an amount not to exceed $4 million and an initial term of four years with the option to extend for up to two additional terms of one year each and or an additional $500,000 each. That concludes the consent calendar. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Um, we will now open public comment for those attending the meeting in person. We'll do that first and then. See no comments on this. Secretary Silva, please go to remote public comment. 
At this time, we'll move to remote public comment now to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. We have no speakers. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Um, we will now close public comment. Directors, any questions? Director Yukudil, I see you first in the queue. Yeah, I, I guess um, it is a specific question about the Vision Zero item, but just in general, I feel like we've I don't know what the goalpost is of whether when something has a certain budgetary amount, when we should pull it off of consent and have a full conversation about it. What is our policy on that? Is there, I thought it was like, maybe, was it a million dollars? Was it, do we have an official policy? I'm not aware, uh, Director Yukutiel, of an official policy we have for um, dollar amounts and consent versus regular items. Generally, if we believe it to be a, a routine um, approval, we will put it on consent. Okay, I, yeah, I guess I just, I think, I don't know if I would subscribe to have, I think it might be a good idea to have some kind of policy just so that for the members of the board that are looking at consent, if it is a large enough number, just making sure we have some extra opportunity to understand what the amount is. It seems to me like the MTC item is a $207 million request. I'm sure it's routine, but I, just wondering, uh, I think it would be good to talk a little bit about that and then uh, just high level uh, discussing the $4 million Vision Zero. Uh, Director, you can sever the two items too, so we could have. Well, I imagine my colleague to my right might have, <laughs> might want to sever the MTC claim. No. Um, then, uh, yeah, then I think maybe put that one aside. If I would just love to hear a little bit more about the Vision Zero thing, since it's, it's such a high profile piece of what we do. Great, so we're gonna sever item 10 points. Let's see, sorry. 10.4? 10.4. And then I think maybe for PAG, thinking about if there should be some kind of, if it's above $5 million or $3 million, if it shouldn't be on consent. Thank you, Director. Director Heminger. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair. I, I'll say to my colleague on my left, um, it is a routine item. It's a large routine item, uh, which is why we should express our gratitude to MTC whenever we get the chance. Um, I wanted to talk about 10.1, and this is a legal settlement. Um, have we discussed this in closed session previously? Uh, Director Heminger, I apologize. I'm not uh, at the moment able to recall whether or not you all have discussed this item separately in closed session. If it's something that you would like to discuss, then we could um, take it off of the agenda for today and bring it back to you uh, for closed session at a future I, meeting. I'd prefer that we do that, uh, Madam Chair, especially in light of the fact that we've got a bare quorum here today. And so any, any negative vote on this uh, sort of deep sixes the item. So I'd like to have uh, Director Eakin back when we do discuss it too. Perfect, I'm amenable to that. Secretary Silva, is there anything we need to do to codify that or is this enough? That's, yes, that direction's enough. Perfect. So other than those two items, we have items, let's see, items 10.3, two and three, two and three with um, the amendments that um, Secretary Silva mentioned, mentioned. Is there a motion to approve those? Yes, yeah, so I'll go ahead and move. 
with 10.2 as amended as this read into the record by our secretary. Excellent. Secretary Silva. Yes, please. Great. On the motion to approve the consent calendar, item 10.2 as amended and 10.3, uh, Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Thank you. The consent calendar is approved. Places you back on ten point item 10.4. I believe we have Jamie Parks to present on this item. John Knox White can present on this item. Good afternoon. Um, so, I'm John Knox White, I'm the Planning Programs Manager for SFMTA. I'm here speaking uh, uh, in support of my uh, colleague, uh, Wynn No, who is out of the office this week. Um, this item is an on call or, or as needed uh, contract. Uh, it's uh, uh, I think the third one that we have done as a part of the Vision Zero pr uh, program, uh, and we are asking for permission uh, for your approval today uh, in order to set us up to be able to um, uh, have a vehicle to provide uh, education, communications, and outreach uh, as funding becomes available. So we are not asking today for permission to spend the $4 million. Uh, that will come separately um, because our processes uh, uh, contracting, et cetera, uh, tend to have us on a 12 to 14 month uh, timeline for uh, when we uh, initiate a contract uh, request and when we can sign a contract. I think this contract was uh, started a year ago, March. Um, the, this sets us up uh, to be able to receive $150,000 uh, uh, in support of uh, infrastructure programs to make sure that we're doing outreach and communications around those programs and explain to the public why we're doing them. Also to do uh, our safety outreach uh, to really engage the community both in understanding what are their concerns uh, with regard to Vision Zero and safety and as well. Okay. So, oh. Director. Um, so just making sure I understand this correctly, it's a do not exceed for four million, but it's not actually request, it's just being able to allocate the money so that at some point, if a contract is to be awarded, that money is in a pot for that? I would say it's the opposite. It's, it's, a, it's a contract to say, if we get money in the future, we have a vehicle we can spend it on, but there is no money attached to this uh, contract at this time. So um, essentially it's a contract that just says, uh, you know, if we receive $150,000, $500,000, a million dollars down the road, that, uh, that is going to go in service of communications, et cetera, we will be able to then issue a task order that goes through a, a, a contract compliance check um, uh, that then becomes kind of a, if you think about it, a, a mini contract essentially. And then it would come back to the board before approval or no? Yeah, not unless the funding itself needed board approval. Okay, and it seems like most of this stuff is going to consulting firms, if I'm not mistaken. I'm looking, I don't yes, know, but. Yes, this is 100%. This is, uh, this is a contract with a specific communications consultant. And it's not, but it's not actually to pay for the safety work. It's just to pay consultants to help us figure out what the, the key program activities should be. Or are we actually, is this money actually going to this is going to do the thing. So MIG, uh, the, the contractor uh, that we're discussing here is a communications uh, contractor. So they help us design campaigns. They will do the ad buys. They will do the social media buys. Uh, they'll do a lot of the graphics work as well. When you're when you're in the mission and you see the the, the speed um, signs uh, related to the new 20 mile an hour speed limits in, in the mission, uh, those were part of an earlier version of this contract. But there was some, can the money actually go? So one of the things is motorcycle safety programs, uh, outreach for 20 mile per hour yeah. speed limits. Is this can this money actually also be used 
to do that implementation, to actually build the signs, deploy the signs, help our teams? So no, it's just helping us figure out what they should look like. So again, like. there's no money in this contract. This is just a communications contract. Um, so we have other contracts for construction or programming or specialized activities uh, that are also on-call contracts so that when we get grant funding available that we can act quickly uh, in order to do that implementation. And so typically what we would do for a project is, you know, the bulk of it would be staff-led, but we might hire a specialty design firm in order to move quickly on a grant where we didn't have enough staff to do the detailed design, and then we would hire a communications firm if we didn't have the existing in-house staff capacity to do that communications work ourselves. Okay, I mean, I guess I just have to ask the question, do we not have the ability to do this within our agency? I no, mean we do not. We are, we are completely dependent upon an array of contractors um, in order to expend large amounts of grant funding that arrive randomly. So we staff the agency based upon the expected level of revenue that we get that is even over the course of the year. And then when grant funding rains down from heaven, then we're dependent upon being able to bring on outsiders in order to support us because we simply don't have the capacity to deliver in-house. So let me get this straight. Right now, if we got money to help us do outreach for all of these key program activities, multilingual targeted campaigns around crash factors, all this stuff around Vision Zero, we could not actually get this stuff done now. We, so, if we so got a bunch we, of money we for it. start with our own staff, and where we don't have existing capacity on our team, then we look out to consultants in order to help us. Okay. And it's up to a million dollars a year for the next four years. To That's right. That. And we might spend zero on this. It's just it's simply a, a contract that allows us to move quickly. Right. Without without us looking at the contract, basically. Which is fine. I'm not trying to gum up the system too much. If we need to move fast, I want to move fast. I think a repeating um, question for me has been like, if we need to save $100 million, like where can we save it? And I just wonder if $4 million, and I'm not saying that we should do this, but $4 million to potentially use that money to hire consultants to help us figure out how to message to people to not for Vision Zero, it's like. So we always start with our in-house workers. Right. Our in-house workers are incredibly efficient and effective. They're great talents. Right. We're also missing 1,200 of them. Right. Right. So we have very limited capacity. Um, with grant funding, the funding is typically highly restricted, so mm. we can't flex it in order to, for example, fund muni service. It can only be used for a public safety campaign, and we have you know three people in-house who could lead that, and if we suddenly have a million dollars that we've got to spend. Right, we wouldn't want to waste it. Exactly. My last question is, in the last iteration of this uh, contract, how much of, did we spend all the money that was allocated to it, and how much was that? We did. Um, my memory is that it was a $5 million contract over five years um, that was spent. At that point in time, we had $2 million in education funds that were um, uh, allocated by a previous uh, MTA board and was that money restricted, that, when that money came in, the grant money that Director Tumlin is talking about, was it restricted like that, where we had to use it for communications? For, for that contract, it was a mix. So we had uh, ATP funds that, yes, could, could only, it, you know, it was a, we, we received a uh, grant funding for a specific outreach and education program um, that needed to, you know, that could not have gone to, to things on the street, but then also a previous iteration of this board uh, with Director uh, Riskin um, allocated some funds uh, in uh, less lean time times uh, at the early in uh, Vision Zero to really uh, raise up and, and increase the visibility around the, 
that. That was our uh, speed campaigns and our, our you know, some of our other uh, education campaigns, and they, I believe it was $2 million over two years. Okay, I guess it's tough because what we're saying is, is that like in the future, if we have money to do this, we want to be able to do this quickly. The money could be restricted so that we have to use it for this, and we wouldn't want to leave that money on the table, but it also could be unrestricted, in which case if we have a big pilot program we want to do and we want to be able to hire a bunch of consultants to do them, there's flexibility internally to do it. Um, and I know if anyone understands our budgetary constraints, it's you, right? And so you don't want to waste a dollar. But we're also being asked on this board to have to make hard decisions. And I'm just wondering, like, at what point do we say we can't do things the way we used to? And if we have a campaign and it's not restricted money, we can't hire consultants to help us figure out what the signs should look like. It is highly unlikely that we would use completely flexible funding on an educational campaign. Typically, these campaign, there are major state grant funding sources that can only go to education or to campaigns. Can't be used for anything else. Uh, it's good, good work to do. We want to be able to do it. Um, Okay, then my, own, uh, my last thing is I just want to register my discomfort, as I've done multiple times on this board, with using money for consultants when we can do the work, work in-house, and which is different than contractors. I think sometimes we, I, I would support using contractors for work that we don't have in-house for, like, painting and, and that kind of thing, where we can hire a third party to do it that requires certain trades. I guess I just have indicated some discomfort with consultants helping us figure out how to do the thing that I feel like our department should be able to do. Um, I want to register that because I've done it before and I want to stay consistent to it. But um, if my colleagues don't have any discomfort with this, then I'm okay moving ahead with it. And I don't mean this as a personal affront to any consultant in the room or out there. It just, you know, that's it. Thank you, Director Yacudiel. No, I, I concur. Um, I, it is, I, I am often remiss that when we award such large contracts to folks. Um, the comfort I do have here is that it is spawned by, like, we essentially contract with folks via work orders, and this is, like, a not to exceed, and so that, that gives me some comfort in that. Um, I do see that there has been, just to understand the parameters of the contract, um, does the contract, I'm not sure if I, it fits in the staff report, but um, does the contract um, make room for... Um, this particular contractor to subcontract with CBOs. Um, I think one of the things that this particular board has been very enthusiastic about is really trying to create more meaningful partnerships with folks on the ground, especially when it comes to messaging around Vision Zero and all the different services that we have. So if you could speak a little bit more about that piece, um, that would be great. It, it absolutely does allow for that and has been used for that in the, in the past. Uh, we do work to have a process in place before we uh, choose which CBOs we might work with through, uh, through the contract. But if there's a communications need that would benefit from uh, working with a, a specific CBO, usually uh, much smaller um, entities that can't compete in these larger uh, communications contracts, we, we definitely encourage uh, partnerships in that way. Uh, the contract also has a local business entity. Since these are, this is a local fund, not a federal fund. Um, contract, so it does have a requirement, um, and I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I don't, I don't remember the n number, but it's uh, w well over a quarter of the 25%, funds. Twenty-five percent. Thank you. I see it. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> I over see it I was going to say over twenty-five. It's exactly twenty-five percent. Exactly. Um, this contractor has a history of uh, exceeding that number uh, in their past contracts with us, uh, so we expect that that will be met, um, and those are typically smaller uh, shops. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other comments, colleagues? Director Hinsey? 
No, I'm I'm good. I mean, I'm 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 I like you. I'm I'm comfortable because this is an as needed contract, so we don't know really how much of it we're gonna spend, if at all. So I'd rather give folks the flexibility to use it if, if needed. So I'm I'm good. Thank you, Director Hensey. Is there a motion to approve this item? So moved. So moved. Second. We should take a public comment on this item, oh, 10.4. Thank you. Um, any comments on this item? For those that are present, not seeing any, um, can we move to remote public comment, please, Director um, Secretary Silva? At this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. We have no speakers. Thank okay. you. Um, so we have a motion um, to approve this item. Can we call the roll, please? On the motion to approve item 10.4, Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Thank you. That item is approved. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Please call the next item. Next item places you on item number 11. Approving a permanent class four parking protected bikeway and various parking and traffic modifications on Fell Street between Baker Street and Schrader Street as part of the Fell Street class four bikeway project. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Elizabeth Chen and I'm a transportation engineer in the streets division. And I'm here today representing the Fell Street class four bikeway project, which is seeking your consideration and approval. So during the COVID-19 emergency, the SFMTA installed a temporary parking protected bikeway on Fell Street between Baker and Schrader Streets to provide relief to crowding on the Panhandle path in July 2020. The Panhandle Social Distancing and Safety Project Excuse was- Excuse me, would you mind pulling the okay. mic down? Thanks. <laughs> Better? Okay, yes. Um, so this project was subsequently approved by the MTA board on August 18th, 2020. And under that resolution, the parking protected bikeway is authorized to be in effect only until 120 days after the termination of the COVID-19 emergency, unless the board takes further action. So today we are now seeking to make permanent the changes that were temporarily implemented under the Panhandle Social Distancing and Safety Project. This bikeway was installed using safe posts, paint, and signs. And as you can see in the before and after diagram shown here, one of the four through lanes was removed. And this three through lane configuration is compatible at both ends of the project corridor since there are only three lanes feeding in at Baker and only three lanes past the Schrader intersection. Parking was also maintained on both sides of the street, but the south side adjacent to the park is now a floating parking lane. And additionally, there were no changes made to driveway access signalize intersections or pedestrian crossings. MTA staff communicated directly with the District 5 Supervisor's Office to address any questions or concerns about the project and most feedback has been positive. However, we did consider that a major feature of this project was a lane drop that was implemented when traffic volumes were suppressed. So ahead of making these changes permanent, we conducted an extensive evaluation of the temporary project. And the Fi San Francisco Fire Department was a major stakeholder, so we worked with them on identifying metrics to include in the evaluation that would help address their concerns about emergency response times in the area. We collected pre-project data in June 2020, 
and compared it to post-implementation data collected between August 2020, about one month post-project, to January 2023, which is about 30 months post-project. So listed on the screen here are some of the key findings from our evaluation. 30 months after the bike lane was installed, vehicle volumes on Fell Street have increased by an average of 9%. At the 12-month mark, vehicle travel times have increased up to 17 seconds on weekdays and 8 seconds on the weekends. We also saw an increase in bike volumes and a growing number of cyclists opting to use the bike lane on Fell Street instead of the Panhandle Path. And most importantly, a crash analysis showed that the annual crash rate to decrease by 42% post-implementation. Now, in comparison, Oak Street did not undergo any roadway configuration changes during this period, and an annual crash rate declined by only 27%. We also actually saw an increase of pedestrian and bicycle injuries on Oak, whereas Fell Street had a 44% reduction. So coming next in the Panhandle Golden Gate Park area is the Oak Quick Build Project. So this project will include designing a bikeway connection between JFK Drive and Kizar Drive and Oak Street. And this project is currently beginning its conceptual design phase and anticipate outreach in the fall and then we'll be seeking approvals in early 2024. So to conclude, there are no changes to the design and we are seeking to make permanent what is currently in place on Fell Street. The lane reduction allows for a more cohesive design on the Fell Street corridor and we've seen a reduction in collisions and as well as an increase of bicyclists using the parking protected bikeway. So thank you for your time and consideration. Thank you so much for your presentation. Directors, are there any clarifying questions on this item? Seeing none, um, we'll now open public comment for those attending the meeting in person. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Leah Culver. I'm a resident of DeBose Triangle, and I often travel to Golden Gate Park um, via bicycle, and have used this bicycle lane many, many times. Um, and I would like to speak in favor. Um, please keep this permanently. It is especially helpful since I ride an electric bicycle, and while the shared use path is lovely, love to use it as a pedestrian and as a jogger, it's nice to be able to have the bicycle dedicated lane for those who are moving more quickly via bicycle um, through that area. And I'm um, also very excited to see it coming to Oak Street. So thank you so much. Thank you for your comment. Any other public comment? Just on this item, we already passed general public comment. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> How are you doing? Hi. Uh, my name is Thierry Phil. Okay, I just wondered, sorry, I wasn't prepared to come, but uh, I saw you were at a meeting. So, I'm here. Um, generally speaking, okay, the key is to uh, remember that everything that's going on here is a problem. It's, uh, we've got a, okay, let's try to, uh, I'm going to try to be as concise as possible and simple, as simple as possible. We are dealing with a mental disorder, generally speaking here. So you have to pay attention. This mental disorder covers all the spectrum, not only SM, F, SFMTA, the transportation situation, of course. It's an emotional disorder. So basically we are dealing with people who are sick. So we need to address them and st start refusing to take their order because they ask us to cure them. Let's be clear. 
So let's process step by step. I'm here to change the course of, I could say, it's a mission, change the course of, because we are going down. So up, we have to get up. Critical thinking, we are dealing with people who are sick. So we are not sick, so we're going to take care of them. It's simple, right? Have a good day. Thank you so much for your comment. Um, Director Heminger, I see that you have a comment. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Uh, and look, we've, uh, we've confronted a success here, so I am happy to uh, move its approval. Um, I, I would like to ask Jamie a question about the, the protected uh, nature of the lane, because I know we've had a, an ongoing debate here about what constitutes a protected lane. And in this case, it's, it's the cars parked uh, to their right, correct? Correct. Um, good afternoon, Jamie Parks, Livable Streets Director with NTA. Yes, the primary protection on the lane is the parked cars themselves. And are you considering that same kind of treatment for Oak Street? We haven't started the design, but yes, we would consider that same type of treatment. And you're looking to do it wherever you can around the city? I mean, is this sort of the state of the art as opposed to just the stanchions that I understand we have to use in some cases, but provide a lot less protection. Yeah. I think where there is space, the parking protected design is our preference, both because the car itself is a large physical presence that does protect the bike lane, and because it provides parking that, of course, appeals to a lot of San Franciscans. Thank you, Madam Chair. So I'll move the item. Great. Um, we still have to conclude public comment, and then we'll move forward with the motion. Um, any more public comment on this item for those present? All right. Um, Secretary Silva, please open up remote public comment, please. At this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. We have no speakers. Thank you, oh. Secretary. Oh. Madam oh. Chair, I will second the motion. Great. We got a motion and a second. Direct, uh, Secretary Silva, please uh, call the roll. On the motion to approve, Director Heminger. Aye. Heminger, aye. Director Hinzi. Aye. Hinzi, aye. Director Yukutiel. Aye. Yukutiel, aye. Director Kahina. Aye. Kahina, aye. Thank you. That motion passes. Thank you, Secretary Silva. And I believe we're going to call item 13 first before 12. Very good. You can please call item 13. Thank you. Just double checking actually our agenda. Ah. The printed agenda is actually correct. Item it's actually item number twelve. Oh it is um, twelve. Okay, yes. perfect. Presentation and discussion regarding the building progress master program and an activity update. Perfect. Uh, good afternoon, Vice Chair Board Members, Jonathan Rewers, Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, today I get to be Building Progress Program Manager, so part of my job. So I'm going to give you a general update on our Building Progress Program, and then we'll be going into one of our larger pro uh, projects, the Petro Yard Modernization Project. So first, just to remind the Board, um, the MTA started the Building Progress Program in 2017. This was after doing a full facilities framework, largely in response to comments we got back from our staff through a series of employee surveys going back to 2014. Um, it is a two plus billion dollar capital program. The reason we put the plus there is 
integrating electrification as the technology is changing, costs and method are still being discussed within the industry, but our initial estimates um, have included that cost within there. Um, and we use innovative and new project delivery methods to implement the program. So a lot of the things that we've learned over time through some of our large projects at the MTA, we have integrated into this program. So there are three key components to the program, modernization, state of good repair, so replacement of our public facilities and yards throughout San Francisco, the construction of facilities such as a new parking control officer headquarters for our growing PCOs and operations across the city, um, improvements to our shops um, and some of our, our technical support facilities through San Francisco, in San Francisco. Now one thing I do want to stress, and sometimes this gets forgotten is, the Municipal Railway was this nation's first publicly owned transportation and transit organization. And so a lot of the yards we have are over a century old. We have two of them that are over 100 years old, part of the reason we focused on that. The second component is electrification. As you know, there are regulatory requirements within the state, and also there's significant amount of federal funds coming towards the electrification of the transit industry. So making sure that the fixed assets and infrastructure is at, uh, is at our yards and that we have the capability of providing the power to be able to get our buses out into service every day. And then lastly, joint development. So taking the properties and the acres we own in San Francisco and positively using that land use to add revenues to the organization for transit and transportation service. So for you and the public, if you did not know, we have 12 underground stations. So three of those were added as part of the Central Subway Project. 31 buildings across San Francisco, 60 acres of land, which makes us the second largest landowner after the Rec Park Department here in San Francisco, 1.9 million square feet of buildings, so that's essentially two Salesforce towers of building that we manage. Combined, both the buildings and stations represent about $5 billion in assets. It's our largest asset class here at the MTA, and you'll see it's our largest backlog. So these assets have our largest state of good repair backlog um, within the MTA. Um, one thing I do want to stress, and this will be upcoming um, in the fall when I provide the board an update on our Transportation 2050 program, but taking our properties, both our parking garages and our physical yards and using joint development to raise revenues is a core component of us trying to move towards financial sustainability. We have done initial work in this area uh, we'll be giving the board an update on that again in the fall on our potential, but the Building Progress Program is a key component for us to be able to do that. Um, just overall, since 2017, we've started the work on the Parking Control Officer Headquarters, so hopefully that will go out to construction um, in early 2024. We'll get the contractor on board. Um, you'll hear later about Petrero, but of a project of that scale, uh, making the progress that we have made in just three years is generally has been unheard of um, yet in San Francisco. We've added 46 new operator restrooms, and these are the operator restrooms that we own, so not necessarily the ones we lease, so ones that we own. Um, out of the $200 million in deferred maintenance we have across our facilities, we have made $8.2 million of improvements, largely focused on restrooms, break rooms, um, 
and um, our HVAC systems um, across San Francisco. Put in a bunch of new escalators, um, and we have one um, set left to go at the Embarcadero station. And then we've started the pilot program. We just completed the pilot project at Woods Yards for our initial chargers. Um, the Isleas Creek uh, bus yard opened, our first bus yard in 10 years. We built a seismically and resilient um, overhead lines facility, brand new facility out at the Burke Warehouse. We did not add one new square foot of space, but we were able to continue to store everything we've always stored at the Central Warehouse and add, again, a seismically safe overhead um, lines maintenance facility. And then we also completed the work um, at our Bancroft facility where a lot of our street operations function. Um, so the critical path is to move forward and complete our new bus wash, uh, bus wash at Woods. Why that project is important is we tried to design in our capital division a standard bus wash that could be used for any type of vehicle at all of our locations as part of an overall state of good repair program. So we'll be able to replicate it in other locations. Um, we're moving forward with the new elevator, the first elevator in many decades added to the Muni Metro system at Castro Station. We're advancing the Kirkland Yard electrification project into preliminary engineering. We're looking overall how to deliver the electrification program within regulatory requirements, which Director Tumlin is working on to come up with something reasonable. Um, we're waiting on a raise grant for our next large project at the Presidio Yard. If we receive that raise grant, it will allow us to complete all environmental and regulatory requirements for that site. Um, we received a $2 million earmark to continue our work at the cable car barn. Um, and we've got our request for proposals drafted for the second phase of our condition assessments for our subway stations. Um, the modernization um, program includes four large key projects. Um, it did include Muni Metro East, I'm gonna talk about that, Petro, which we'll talk about after this, the Kirkland Yard, and Presidio Yard. Again, the focus at the time of the modernization program was service requirements, the fleet requirements, i.e. storage, maintenance, and or electrification, so you'll see the regulatory component, and then funding availability. So again, we're using unique methods to try to get this done because while this is our biggest state of good repair need, it is also the hardest piece of assets that the MTA owns to fund. It is very difficult for us to fund this program. So again, um, the original facilities framework set the overall requirements for the program. So we're working on something that's five years old, but the important thing was we made it flexible because we knew funding might not always show up, but we'll still have this fleet requirement, but we'll still need to continuously update the facilities. So the program was built based on changing circumstances and adaptability. So the original program in 2017 assumed that we would build a temporary trolley coach facility at Muni Metro East. The patrol yard uh, division and functions would move to that facility. We would then move on to Presidio, which in turn would have its operations at the temporary yard, and then we would go into Kirkland because it was a window of time in which the fleet would be at the proper size that we could afford to have one complete yard closed. By 2019, we, after evaluating um, the drainage requirements at Muni Metro East and having to recycle the water for the bus wash on site. We added the 1399 maintenance facility, so storage would occur at Muni Metro East, maintenance would occur at 1399 Marin with Petro, Presidio, and Kirkland following. We have now modified the program for a couple reasons, one of those being do we have enough money to do all this work, regulatory timing, and most importantly, not causing any delay to the Petro project. So uh, 
Julie Kirschbaum, your transit director, gave you an update on our service plans um, over the next few years. What we did in turn then was take that service plan, make assumptions around what the fleet requirements would be in that period, in turn what our storage requirements would be for that fleet over that period, and technology requirements. So what that allowed us to do is we will not be doing the 1399 uh, Marin project for trolley coach maintenance. We will not be doing the temporary trolley coach facility at Muni Metro East. We will not be moving the Petro division. We will be closing it down for a period of time. And based on our new service plan, we'll be redistributing those resources to other yards. That is something we're gonna have to work with our labor partners on. It is difficult, but between Julie and I, and again, trying to reduce the cost of these projects and deliver them on time, this is now the proposed program that we're, that we're advancing and moving forward. So Petro will go first, Kirkland Yard to meet the electrification requirements as we electrify will be second. Presidio remains largely on its original schedule. Muni Metro East will be expanded and I don't want you to think that the work we did will go to waste because the second phase was always to expand it for rail. For the last set of the Siemens cars, we were only gonna use it temporarily for trolley coach. So the underlying engineering and work that we did will still be used for that. We will just modify those drawings for expanded rail storage on that site. Um, in 2022, we completed our battery electric bus facilities master plan. That was done with a consultant team that supported us. Um, it was important for us to understand with the regulatory requirements, um, what schedule would be required. So it's not only fleet size, but fleet technology was something we hadn't fully considered. That also led to kind of the change of sequencing that we had discussed. So the Petrero Yard now will largely be a trolley coach facility and be this agency's permanent trolley coach facility. It is very likely if Kirkland comes in and Presidio after that Presidio will largely be a battery electric bus facility. We again will allow for the flexibility of the operation, but again, based on this plan and the timing of electrification, that is what is now making sense. The harder part is the power requirements, which we are continuing to work on with our Public Utilities Commission here and any associated infrastructure. So there's not just the infrastructure on the site, but there's the infrastructure of actually getting the power to these sites which isn't always within our control and which we need to partner very closely with the PUC. Um, again, the last bullet, this schedule is based on what I'm going to tell you is an unreasonably aggressive regulatory requirement. Um, Director Tumlin has been working with CARB on that and we think we have negotiated a reasonable solution to make this a workable plan. So you'll see the electrification program here again. So it's Kirkland. Woods Yard phase two, we would expand the initial pilot again to meet fleet demand. Islaus Creek, we would begin an initial pilot to start um, having the electrical infrastructure in place. And then the Presidio Yard, as I noted previously. Um, we are putting together an entire program management plan right now in a, a, a MOU with the Department of Public Works to maximize city resources for such a program as this. We'll use resources in Department of Public Works um, and our own capital programs and construction division. Lastly, just a quick update on our joint development program. So this is the opportunity again to build positive revenues for the MTA that we would in turn put back into transit and other services here in San Francisco. So we are advancing the housing project at the Petro Yard, which you'll get an update on shortly. Um, the most important part for Petrero, while still today, it is not estimated to generate positive revenue for the MTA. What it does though, 
is it puts us in the marketplace and it sets the template for this type of joint development project. So we are building new types of agreements, new types of negotiations, how to work with the development community on these properties, and there have been significant lessons learned. Um, to date, for Presidio, we have completed development options for that site um, that we're considering now, and the land use overall, that was funded by a grant um, from Caltrans. The other two sites on here that you'll see, other than Petrero and Presidio, are the Moscone Garage, in which we had gone out with an RFP prior for joint development of affordable housing and kind of a hotel use on that site. Um, current market conditions probably aren't best for that type of land use at this point in time. So we're reimagining kind of what can be done both with Moscone and the fifth admission garage, considering parking requirements in the overall area, meeting high levels of demand, but also trying to monetize the property um, at both of those sites. So kind of lastly, we only do something like this every century. So we have a very limited period of time to kind of make some big decisions and consider how we can use the 60 acres of land we have in San Francisco. Our overall goal means we want to try to monetize the facilities where we can with joint development. We absolutely want to up, update our aged infrastructure, but we also need to try to make it future-proof. And that is difficult when you're considering 100 years, like would we get enough power there? How might technology change? Like as an example, at two of our yards now, like the maintenance bays are pits and inappropriate pits for some of our, our maintenance staff to be able to do the work. The trolley coaches, they have to maintain outside at Potrero. Like there is no ability for them to do a lot of the work because the technology today for a trolley coach has most of the equipment above the vehicle, not below. So this is an example where when buildings last you 100 years, you really have to think very carefully about how you design and structure them because they need to last a significant period of time. That is it on that quick update, and then we'll go into Petro, but I'm happy to take any questions you have right now. Directors, any questions on this item? Yes. <laughs> Director Yacudio. Thank you. <clears throat> Four questions. The first is how size four yeah. exactly four at this time. How seismically safe are our facilities? Um, we have so the city kind of registers things at seismic hazard rating, and we've done seismic hazard rating reviews of some of our facilities. Um, portions of them are not in conditions that would survive a Loma Prieta level event. Um, we keep them at a level of maintenance that they are functional, but much like the city, it's hospital facilities, it's, it's fire stations, we need to make significant seismic upgrades to our, our yards and facilities. Is it like commercial and residential where the city is requiring everyone to come to a certain level of code compliance within a certain amount of time, or is it more lackadaisical? No, the, the city does have a robust program to do that. That's, that's usually the, the Easter bonds that go on the ballot. Um, those largely have to do Easter? with seismic safety. Like yeah, the bunny? E -S -E -R. Oh. It's the emergency seismic safety like okay. something bond. And so that's the city's program of constantly doing that. Um, we have had one. So the first one was the new overhead lines facility. So that was in an unreinforced masonry building that would not have survived a major earthquake. So their new facility absolutely would. So in an emergency, if we have significant overhead lines going down around the city, those staff need to be able to access their truck, you know, their trucks, their tools, their equipment to respond. 
The prior facility did not meet that requirement. The current one does. Well, I will note somewhat morbidly that we are overdue for something even larger than the Loma Prieta, and so um, let's hope it doesn't happen before these changes are made. Um, awkward. Reproducing housing in the future. What we're planning on doing with Potrero Yard, is it, your, is it your plan that as we remodel some of these other bus yards that you'd like to reproduce that same idea and have housing above future it, renovations? Yeah, so just with Potrero and all of our facilities, I mean, we do a full economic development analysis within the current market of what might get you you know, maximum revenue depending on the site and, and what's around. Housing could be one of those, commercial could be one of them. So like the Hotel Vitali out on the Embarcadero, like that's a lease. We, we gain, you know, about, Kirsten can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like $9 million a year in revenue. So, I mean, we generate revenue and that's a hotel. And we've looked at hotels on like some of our, our parking garage properties. So we will do an evaluation of what will generate the most revenues for the agency and its operations, and then you know consider other policy goals such as meeting housing requirements. So as an example, Petrero was in the, the housing element of the general plan, and a certain number of units are actually assumed for our Presidio site as well. Mm. This is an addendum to the second question, so not actually a third question, but a follow-up to your answer to the second question. And um, are there any you know, quick ideas that you have for revenue generation on our real, on our properties, given kind of the f fiscal crunch we find ourselves in? So there's, there's some good and there's some bad. We're at kind of a trough in the market. So a coffee we're at a cart time, maybe, you know. Yeah, so there, this is a good time for us to figure out what our land use will be, do the pro formas to figure out the revenue, and be ready to bring on development teams that, you know, kind of post this period, will construct up to a point of recovery. So we can be part of that recovery in the city. And I think that the planning and development infrastructure this agency needs to have in place to do that, we now have in place. Great. How much money did the non-MME expansion work save the agency? Um, I would say that saved us about $100 million. Right, because I remember reading about the price of that in between plan, just thinking like, I wish there was a way we could figure out internally not to spend a hundred million dollars just to like hold things together while this other bus yard gets uh, renovated. So to me, that feels. I know it's probably going to be hard to figure that out internally. So thank you, Director Kirschbaum. But smart move makes a lot of sense. Congratulations. A hundred million dollars is very much needed right now. So. Just want to acknowledge that, like, that I'm sure that's going to be tough for our agency to make happen, but seems like a great idea. Um, the last question, a little testy, um, it's about our headquarters. Mm -hmm. What percentage of our work workforce, like, how, what percentage of our workforce is working from HQ? How, how full is that building? Um, and for that, yeah, what's yeah. going on? What's going on with her? So, so typically we have program for that space. You know, let's say out of our sixty-two hundred employees, it's planned for about eleven hundred, like maybe twelve hundred, if we really crush load, um, one South Van S. Um, I do want to make clear that we do not own one South Van S, and that we pay for it through a city work order every year, essentially rent to stay there. So, one out of six employees, eighteen, nineteen percent of the workforce. Are we requiring our workforce to work from the office, those that are not in the field? Yes, three days we, a week. Three days a week? So is, do we give them the opportunity to choose those three days, or it's... 
Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It is generally within the divisions and the particular operational sections. What percentage of the workforce that was working from headquarters, though, is back and is, are we asking to go back to HQ? I guess where I'm trying to go with these questions is, is I think it's about $10 million a year to the city to rent out that building. And if we're only using 50% of it, I wonder if we're thinking about other ways, other places where we could have our HQ staff work for and save, I told you it was a testy question, save five to $8 million a year on rent uh, that we're paying to our sisters two floors down. And it is not a testy question because we have considered that very thing and we have considered alternatives where this market might be better for us um, based on where it is with regard to office space and or on one of our sites constructing our own headquarters and then you know the lease you know what we pay in the lease capitalizes the asset over time and then we own a new headquarters so we have considered the alternative to build our own headquarters on our own property. I'm sorry, I have to ask this question then. Is there room in the new permitting center building that's probably not being fully, is it, there's no room over there for us to take we up We tried that even before when they were building it. And they were, it was a no, it was yeah. a chop. Um, okay, when is our lease expiring at HQ? Uh, it doesn't expire, it is an annual work order so we with could, the Department of Real Estate. I see, okay. Curiouser and curiouser, thank you. Thank you, Director, Director Heminger. Thank you, Madam Chair. I'd actually like to uh, start uh, with where Director Yakutia left off because I've been thinking about that subject myself. And what I wonder, Jeff, uh, the number I heard at least in a recent meeting was we pay 11 million bucks a year to the city general fund for that building. Um, and that's a time-honored tradition of like soaking the MTA with whatever you can get away with. What I wonder about, though, uh, given the fact that you're making some progress in Sacramento, but not all that we need, um, whether or not some kind of discussion about foregoing that rental payment for a period of time uh, while we're in financial difficulty and perhaps paying it back um, later on when we're in less difficulty. There are many ways in which the general fund departments could reduce expenses for the SFMTA in order to help us get through the next couple of years of crisis. Unfortunately, as you know, the general fund is also being now hit from a reduction in property value, reduction in sales tax, and so on. Um, so now is not a good time to be having that conversation, but we would welcome any support that you would like to provide as we try to... Well, but I, I think the difference, though, and I understand that everybody's having a hard time, but it's a matter of priority. Um, and the work that we do is, among other things, very highly visible and desired by the public. Um, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to be cutting muni lines to save the job of some bureaucrat over in some agency that no one's ever heard of. Um, and we do, unlike those other agencies, probably have the ability to pay something back if they were willing to look the other way on rent for a couple of years. Um, so along the lines of trying to find something quick, uh, and maybe it's a Hail Mary pass, I don't know, you're probably right, I think that's at least worth a conversation because um, everyone's going to have their hand out in this exercise, so I guess we should get in line. Um, the, uh, the second thing I wanted to ask about, um, 
and it's it's a much bigger subject area. Um, you know, the mayor has been talking a lot about the future of downtown and where it is today and where it might go in the future. And I know that we're going to have to have some kind of very large and citywide, perhaps regional conversation about what our downtown looks like in 10 years. And two of your joint development projects, Fifth and Mission and Moscone, are smack in the middle of that. Um, so I guess one question at least is, are, are we sufficiently plugged in to whatever I'm reading about in the newspapers? And what am I reading about in the newspapers? I mean, what are you plugging into? So that, that's a great question. I can kind of give you two answers. So first, um, with regard to One South Van S. So as part of the overall hub and land use plan, like that was that whole block and those four corners were significantly upzoned. And at some point in time, One South Van S was kind of the odd building out compared to everything that, you know, whether or not development happens, it's zoned for significant growth in the future. So the city has always been interested in trying to find a way to develop that site, except there's a huge amount of employees that work there and you need some alternative site. So we have been, you know, talking with the Department of Real Estate and, you know, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development about how you could do joint development amongst multiple sites within the downtown where we could get some rent relief. They might contribute to a building. So something like that, we've iterated around that, but that was kind of just before the pandemic that we were looking at, at that particular option. Um, second, we will be looking at work orders in, in the upcoming year through the budget process, I think with a much higher level of scrutiny in the past. And then lastly, I do meet with the city's like director of development in the Office of Economic and Workforce Development bi-weekly. I meet with Antopia, and these our development program will be a partnership with OEWD, where, where actually one of the staff on the Petro project works in OEWD. So yes, we are in constant communication. And however our sites can integrate into whatever the plan for the downtown is, I think our only condition is we must make revenue. So, you know, if, if the city wants to integrate these sites into their plans, that's fine. But the charter says that we should make positive revenue off of our properties. You know, we've, in this discussion, we've talked, I think, about three specific facilities. Mm -hmm. But the, the talking point that you gave us that I'm going to remember is that our property amounts to two Salesforce towers. The number of square feet we manage in building is equal to two Salesforce towers, yes. Are, are you ever going to try to take that big chunk out of that and figure out a comprehensive real estate strategy for do we have one? This is one, this is the update I will be giving the board as part of Transportation 2050. So yes, we've done pro formas for a number of our sites. We have estimates based on land use as to how much revenue we think that we can generate off those sites. In the past, I've given this board an estimate of about $30 million a year in revenue based on certain land uses on those sites and revenue generation. And both Director Tumlin and I are in discussions with City Hall and potentially changes in the state that would allow us to generate even more revenues on those properties. So that was always in the Building Progress Program. We have had a robust development program. I think the pandemic kind of shifted the nature of the market. I think we had you know, clear intentions on what we wanted to do. Um, then the housing element showed up 
and now kind of the, the rethinking of the downtown has showed up, but we are absolutely a willing partner as long as we make revenue off of the properties that the MTA controls. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Director Heminger. Director Hinsey. Thank you, Madam Chair. And this is sort of going off of uh, Director Yucutio's question earlier about um, earthquake preparedness. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about another uh, sort of maybe natural disaster eventuality as it relates to our facilities. Oh. A while back um, at a PAG meeting, Director Tina and I were both struck by a, a, um, a presentation that we had around sea level rise mm -hmm. and about how that might affect our facilities as it relates to sea level rise, particularly um, along the creeks, etc. And I know we have Islay's Creeks um, stuff, so I. I wanted to, to give you the opportunity to sort of talk about that, particularly as we were kind, we're kind of talking about relocation and other mm -hmm. facilities that might be available, et cetera. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the sea level rise work as it relates to some of the things in the portfolio that you manage. So that that is one of the, the resiliency components that I talked about kind of within the overall building progress program. and. Usually what happens is there's something like sea level risk or earthquake risk, and then you kind of do a trade-off within the project. Can I afford it? What is it going to look like? I think um, my team takes a little bit of a different view and that, again, these are 100-year facilities, so we need to assume that these events will occur. And so as an example, when we built the new Bancroft facility, we, we raised the floor because we had the sea level estimates. Again, that's our overhead lines facility and our central warehouse for a lot of our key parts and components. So we planned for resiliency and sea level rise in that case. In the case of Muni Metro East, um, Islaus Creek, and work that we do at the ports facility at 1399 Marin, those are high risk facilities. And so as we make upgrades, as we prepare for electrification, it is impossible for us to ignore the issues of sea level rise and not have those facilities prepared for those scenarios. We are already looking at options. We did at 1399 Marin. Um, the difference was we don't own it and it was a 10-year facility, so we were looking at more operational mitigations during high water. At our own facilities, especially Muni Metro East, when we expand those four acres for rail and as we electrify Islaus Creek, we will need to include capital investment modifications to deal with that risk. And so um, it is not like, will we choose and maybe wait 20 years and then do it then? We need to and have been planning for those improvements as part of these projects now. Okay, thank you, manager. Thank you, I just had a couple of follow-up questions around operator restrooms. So I'm, I'm so glad that, those, that you highlighted those. Um, I just wanted to get a better snapshot of, if, sorry. <laughs> No, ask, but Kirsten has way more answers than I do she about does? operator okay. restrooms. Kirsten, if you're in the room, please come forward. Um, um, yeah, so I just wanted to get a better understanding of what our operator restroom situation was like, you know, in terms of um, are we at a deficit? Are we, you know, meeting the, the requirements of what we should have for our operators? Um, are there any, you know, where's our room to grow? I'm um, just to get a better snapshot of what that looks like. 
So I'm going to introduce Kirsten McGarry, who I would not live without. Like she is, <laughs> like she's our she's our section director for our facilities and real property management section, and she has been working on operator restrooms since the original task force was completed. So those 46 are due to a huge part of of her and her team getting it done. Go ahead, Kirsten. Thank you very Thank much, you, Jonathan. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Kirsten McGarry, senior manager of facilities and real property management. So yes, the operator restroom task force started in 2012. And we have had three different um, project um, phases. And we have now have 46, as was described, um, permanent operator restrooms. But that's not the full story. There's actually about uh, more than 146, 146, which we own and or lease and or get from private companies or agencies for nothing for our operators. So they're all over San Francisco and Daly City oh. and at each of the terminals that the buses or light rail systems go to. I didn't even know there was a task force on This is amazing. There is a task force, <laughs> and you're welcome to come. There, there are biweekly meetings. So yeah, I'd love to attend one. <laughs> um, You're welcome to join them anytime. That's excellent. And so in terms of, um, we have 146, I guess, out there. Um, and the ones that we that we don't own, I guess we lease. And lease or get uh, at no cost. At no cost. Mm -hmm. um, and are there, I guess, like right now, are we hitting our marks in terms of like the amount of restrooms we should have for the amount of folks that we have um, servicing our city or, or do we need more or it's like what well, is that the one like that's here? remaining to be built out is to create two at the Embarcadero station right. and so the funds that were going to go into one that was at 6th and California the task force decided uh, that it would be better to spend those funds at the Embarcadero station where there's more volume of traffic uh, so the operators who have a terminal or can stop there long enough, can use one of the two, which will be underneath the escalators. So those will be new. And we're getting that approved through MTA and BART, who owns the stations. Well, that's great. Um, the next question that I had was about our escalators and elevators. I'm just understanding, like, what's the status of those? Um, are those, um, you know, do we need, it's so great that we have one now in Castro Station, but, um, and when was, when is that going to come live? Or when are, when are folks going to expect to use that? Um, so that is supposed to, I'm just going off my last memory of the schedule. So I believe this, it will come to the MTA board um, early next year. It's out to bid. Okay. It's about a two-year construction. It is complicated construction between the plaza and, you know, not interrupting service and the time that the work can be done. But I think it's about a two-year construction window. So I'd say about 28 to, to 36 months in total before it's done and, and completed. The designs are complete. Um, there will also be some work done around the plaza at the same time um, in partnership with, with groups out there at the Castro. In terms of the other elevators that we have in existence right now, are those um, in a good state? Do we also need to invest in those? Like, give me a so that, that, that's a good question. So there's a little line of demarcation um, between my team and, and transit division. So we manage the construction of the escalators and the stations, like we're largely responsible for the physical stations because they're just an underground building. Um, the elevators and escalators, though, are maintained by the maintenance of way team and a whole team within transit division. Um, Julie, you, you're free to come up, but they're, they're 
as needed contracts and contracts for support on the maintenance based on the component requirements and the parts for our escalators and elevators after they're constructed. And I know, you know, we follow up on feedback regarding those every, every single day. Okay. Um, Julie, you seem like you wanted some, to say something. Just a couple things. Um, I want to thank um, Kirsten so much for the the restroom program. You know, it is a basic human right. And when we sat in the room in 2012 and decided to have this task force, I don't think anybody anticipated that it was going to need to meet bi-monthly for over a decade. And she has literally kept these meetings going, and we now have restroom access at all of our terminals uh, for our operators. So great. Um, our uh, elevator and escalator program, I do consider to be relative to our, a lot of our programs um, in a, a state of good repair. We have made a good investment in it. We have a uh, policy that we would like two elevators at all of our stations um, for accessibility reasons. Elevators, even in the best of state, are um, difficult to, to keep in a constant operational state. There's a lot of little things to, to go wrong, and so um, Castro is an example of that. Um, we're working on an elevator at Powell with a, a similar goal. So. We would eventually like to have two elevators in all of our stations, um, and we are achieving that in, in many but not all locations. Thank you, Julie. That's it for me. Um, remind me, Secretary Silver, are we hearing these two items together or separately? Oh, public comment. Um, we should take them separately. Go ahead. And do you want to start public comment Friday yes. and 12? Great. Yes, please. Any members of the public wishing to provide comment on this item, item 12, can approach the podium. Thank you. Um, thanks again, uh, Chair Kahina. Uh, Alina Dupree, for the record, she and her, uh, very good report, uh, talks about the basics. Um, uh, so this is a $5 billion organization, as I read it. BART, I think, is uh, valued at about $15 billion. And the New York City subway is valued at $1 trillion, most valuable transit system in the world. It's a lot of money. Um, all of our campus could probably, uh, you could fit a little more than 49 acres of Grand Central Terminal in New York City. So how do we make best use of that? And electrification is, is essential. I keep talking a lot about electrification. It's, it's foundational. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, why is it so hard to get electricity uh, into our system? Uh, I, I live in an all-electric home. don't know if that's very common, uh, but, but I, I have that, and I use a lot of electricity, and I don't seem to have any problem getting electricity in, in my home, though sometimes the power uh, goes out like it would for anybody. Uh, that's really important, especially when we have our hydroelectric dams and a transmission line that runs to Newark, California, not New Jersey. Mm -hmm. We have to have some bold ideas on how to get electricity, maybe to finish that transmission line from Newark, California over here so we can have more control over our transmission. You know, Amtrak has its own power system between New York and Washington. 
so, so we really have to think big because electrification is the future. We gotta keep up the elevators in the restrooms because if I'm having a bad day, uh, I, I might need to use them. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pree. Any other public comment on this item? Seeing none, um, Secretary Silva, please move to remote public comment. At this time, we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star three to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. We have no speakers. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Um, can you please call the next item, I guess? Would it be possible uh, <clears throat> to request a five minute bio break because That's completely fine. <laughs> it does seem like a strange power move to have my GI system hold up the entire work of this agency, but that is the case, and I would love a five-minute break. Appreciate your candor, Director <laughs> Cudio. Um, and can we call a five-minute recess? Very good. We'll reconvene at approximately 3 o'clock. Thank you. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
15, presentation and discussion regarding a Potrero Yard moderniz modernization project update. All right, uh, Vice Chair Board Members, Jonathan Ruers, still Chief Strategy Officer of the MTA. Um, now to give you an update, this was, I believe one of the directors up here at the dais wanted multiple bites of an apple. And so this is to provide some of those bites as previously requested by the board. So we'll be giving you an update today on one of our bigger projects, the Patrol Yard Modernization Project. Just really quick again for context, this facility was originally opened in 1915. You will see in this photo here some much older versions of our trolley coaches. This is a photo of the facility in 1949 when it was converted um, to a trolley coach facility. But overall, this facility is 100 years old, serves and served in the past 100,000 Muni riders per day. And you'll see some of the lines that come out of this facility, the 5, the 5R, the 22, the 49, the 30, all over San Francisco and some of our most significant transit lines. Um, this project, and I, and I do want to stress this because the team in here has asked me to, but this project will build um, first in the world infrastructure. And so we are definitely learning a lot doing this project. Um, a lot of us will cover that with you today. But there is not a project on planet Earth that is combining the types of infrastructure in a single building. Um, that we are building here at the Petrero Yard. So not only is it something that accomplishes a number of policy goals that I discussed previously, but it's also a demonstration on how in a major metropolitan area, when you need to increase your state of good repair, you need to modernize your transit facilities, how you can also deal with issues of housing and resiliency and state of good repair all in one location. So kind of the overall goals of the project, again, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but just efficiency, sustainability, the growth of the system, and the working conditions for our employees. Again, state of good repair. We've talked about climate and decarbonization. This is a key component of us being able to do that. Advancing a 500 unit housing project on the site is also a key component. And then the project delivery overall of the project and how we're able to achieve that and do that here in the city and county of San Francisco. So to remind the board, this project uses a design, build, finance, and maintain approach. It is the first time that we have delivered a project um, in this way. The three follow-ups from the board meeting um, on November 2022 um, was to introduce our team here, the Potrero Neighborhood Collective, so that will occur today, and you will get to hear from the team directly who was selected for this project. Um, they will go through the proposal and some of the changes to the outreach, especially around the design and kind of elements of the overall building, kind of where we stand with that. And then um, you would ask for steps towards hiring a PMO for the project. Um, we are developing that. We'll have an RFP out on the street. So at the point that this comes back to you when we get to the final project agreements, we'll be ready to integrate that into the overall project. So won't go through all of this, but this has been um, quite extensive outreach um, in the mission to kind of create and partner and iterate on this project. Um, you can see going back to 2018, the significant work that we've done in the community. I think the most important part for this team um, is one, we created a neighborhood working group and I think that has paid huge dividends doing that. And second, we go to the community where they are. 
So while we have certain meetings and locations for people to interact with us, we actually go out to groups during their meetings and their periods of times for project updates and or feedback. Um, actually, I do wanna go back, because one other thing that, it's not only the active community in that we are a fixed plant and facility, but there's also been significant inreach with our own employees. So this is not only a project in which we're doing significant outreach on transit service, state of good repair, housing, infrastructure development, but also significant inreach with our mechanics and our operators and our supervisors on their work conditions, what we can do to make it better, how we can design a building for their future needs. Um, you'll see kind of the critical path here. So we constantly have um, community listening sessions. Those are ongoing. So as people want updates on the project or want us um, to come talk to them, we do that. I was at one of those meetings just last week. Um, we got our pre-application done with the planning department um, just towards the end of the year, right after you approved um, the preliminary development agreement. And again, you'll see we've been to a number of events. Um, we've completed our civic design review. Um, and we constantly, you'll see, survey on open decision points was an important component where we took one of the meetings um, with the neighborhood working group and we directly addressed every comment and concern that came up. We had documented all of them and in that session we actively responded and we were very clear about things we could do and things we couldn't. And then we discussed why. And believe it or not, you know, I, I remember getting feedback from that meeting, and it's like, you didn't give me the answer I wanted to hear, but I was very appreciative to the agency for having the conversation. And I think that's always, you know, where we want to end up on, on projects like this. So here we are in the overall schedule. The critical path is to move us to you to approve the project agreement, eventually uh, certify the CEQA document, so we already have the administrative draft of the EIR completed on this project, um, working on the entitlement package, um, get that approved by the Planning Commission, the MTA Board, and the Board of Supervisors. That is, well, I'm going to tell you, the project is actually on schedule. And so we anticipate getting that to you um, right around the end of the year or just maybe a little bit um, after the end of the year, early in, in 2024. Um, we're at 100% schematic design, that's the current critical path, um, and we're finalizing the work around the CEQA documents and entitlement. You'll see what we've done kind of to date. So we're at 50% schematic design in March. Um, in 2020, in April, we were at project application. We got to final 50% schematic in May. So very aggressive, hitting our time points on the schedule. Um, then, I'll, as I said, um, we hope to close the pre-development phase and get the sequin entitlements done. I've got it right on that line. The schedule's going back and forth and we're working on it with the planning department. But generally, we wanna to try to get to the planning commission before the end of the year, let's say sometime around November, then get to the MTA board, then get to the board of supervisors um, with the agreements related to the project. So now let me talk about risks. Because again, this project is design, build, finance, maintain, and financing is a key component of the project. So one of the reasons that we try very hard to protect this project from having any scheduled delay is due to the nature of the financing. Every time we delay this project, it will cost this agency more money. So we try very hard to manage to the critical path of the schedule. So believe it or not, when we talked about 1399 Marin and Muni Metro East, not only were there the service and other components in the overall program that we were considering, we also considered that if those two projects weren't done in the right sequence, Petrero would be delayed. And so not only did we achieve savings due to not constructing those two projects, but there would have been 
up to a year delay on Petro had we moved forward with those projects, which would have resulted in cost escalation on the Petro project. So by making the changes that we did, we were able to avoid that, that situation. So we're always evaluating project risk um, across the project. Right now, schedule was a key component of that. The economic circumstances that we're in, which Chris is going to talk about with very, very, very high interest rates um, and still very, very, very high construction are definitely headwinds that we are dealing with and that we're working through kind of every day. We do have contingency plans in place. So again, for each of those risks, we have identified contingencies today. And I want to be very clear about this because this is a very important public project that's, that's out there. Today, the scope of the project is not changing. So as of today, the three-story bus yard is still in scope. 500 units of housing is still in scope as a complete project. So even knowing all the risks and complexities and headwinds, the scope is staying the same as of right now. We are also on schedule. So the intended schedule when you approved um, the pre-development agreement, when we went to March to November, remember the only difference was, the board might remember we did the best and final offer process. We did a BAFO before we implemented the final pre-development agreement because we really wanted to vet the project, um, the proposal that we had received from the team behind me. And so that, that caused a delay, but it didn't start the project. Like we hadn't started the clock at that point. So as of since then, this project still remains on schedule. There is a fixed budget limit to the project, as the board remembers. Um, but that is being actively negotiated now. So I cannot talk much about it. We will talk about the headwinds and risk. And cost is going to be a risk. But again, it's something on our risk register. We have contingencies kind of based on that in the overall project. So. Um, I want to be very transparent that scope is being sustained and maintained. The schedule is on schedule. We are negotiating the cost. That is part of this overall process, and we are working through that. Um, so I'm going, I'm, I never get Chris's name right. So Chris is going to come up and introduce himself um, from the, the PNC team, and he is going to introduce himself and the team and kind of where the project is. So you get your second bite of the apple, and you may question the team and, and kind of ask them about their proposal, um, and then I will close out on, on project delivery. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Chris Hargy, and I'm the project manager for Petrero Neighborhood Collective, which is, um, which is a consortium of a number of different firms sitting behind me today. It's a pleasure to be here and introduce our team, introduce our approach, and introduce our plans and the progress that we've made to date. Next slide. Oh, no, um, I want to start by sharing the five goals that we've instilled in our team. Those five goals are up on the slides. Um, partnership, innovation, economic inclusion, community voice, and racial equity. On partnership, this is working collaborative, collaboratively, diligently, and regularly with the SFMTA and other members of the city family to progress the work that Jonathan mentioned earlier. This collaboration is evidenced by our engagement with staff and community across disciplines to advance design, regulatory approvals, outreach, selection of a design builder, and cost management. On innovation, we proposed a fully affordable housing solution that includes income-restricted workforce housing for public servants and others and earning between 80% and 120% area medium income that might otherwise be priced out of the city. 
This approach is informed by our understanding of the importance of this community and the city at large for strong and resilient communities with affordable housing. Economic inclusion. We are committed to deliver during the pre-development phase and post-pre-development phase in partnership with local business enterprises and local hire. During the PDA phase, during the pre-development phase, P Petrero Neighborhood Collective, PNC, has engaged LBEs to support key roles and has begun meeting with the LBE community, including SF Latino and Black Business Association and African American Construction Collective. Moreover, PNC has proposed a 20 to 25% LBE participation goal throughout the life of the project, which includes design, construction, and operations, and facilities maintenance, excuse me, for both the bus yard and housing. We expect bidding contractors to also include plans for micro LBE plans inclusion, many of whom are hyperlocal. Community voices, the importance of community, this community cannot be understated. We have been and will continue a robust outreach that aligns with SFMTA's commitment to public participation following the IAP2 model. Our outreach is bilingual, English and Spanish, and meets community where they are through grassroots efforts. These voices help inform and influence our design. Specifically, as Jonathan mentioned, the Petrero, neighborhood collect Petrero Yard Neighborhood Working Group continues their role, a role they've served for several years in being a valued, informed, and vocal stakeholder. Lastly, racial equity. We are mindful this project sits on the land of the Ohon people and historically Latinx community. We also recognize the legacy of forced out migration of predominantly black residents during the urban renewal period. It is this collective understanding of racial injustice to BIPOC that fuels us to make decisions about community engagement, tenant marketing, and podium resource planning with the racial equity lens. Next slide. Now to provide specifics on who we are. Plenary. Plenary Americas is a U.S.-based company with U.S. headquarters in Los Angeles and Canadian headquarters in Toronto. Plenary Americas is one of the most successful public-private partnership developers in North America with a portfolio of 59 public-private partnership projects across North America with a total value of over $17 billion. We employ approximately 120 people in North America in five main offices. My and a lot of my colleagues are in the room today. Um, we have our affordable housing developers, known as MITI, and that's composed of three different affordable housing developers, the Mission Economic Development Agency, Young Community Developers, and Tabernacle. These are three local housing developers with expertise and experience with MOHCD-funded housing development projects. On design, we have Arcadis IBI and YA Studios, a collaboration between two esteemed firms that combines over 30 years of infrastructure design and 23 years of affordable housing. On consultants, we have Plant Construction and Allen Group supporting us with cost estimating, with over 30 years of Bay Area commercial construction experience. DNA Communications, as well, is supporting us with over 35 years of local government, community, and re regulations experience. Next slide. Now to get into the design. I want to start with the visual from Bryan Street looking eastward towards the project, and I want to highlight several features and benefits of the bus yard. Our focus continues to be designing a bus yard to meet the needs of SFMTA employees and the neighbors. Our design mitigates noise through a roof deck and building enclosure, as well as relocating key maintenance activities at the ground level within the facility. It maintains public visibility with Muni operations remaining, being able to see Muni operations through a glass wall on 17th Street. It focuses on employment wellness, natural light at the ground level and parking levels, as well as outdoor space, including a barbecue, um, uh, including a barbecue. It aligns with the, first, with the transit first city policy, and this, uh, this project has no tenant parking 
that provides space for alternatives to automobile ownership, such as car share and bicycle parking. And lastly, it includes a structural solution to allow for a podium, this podium to build housing above the bus yard. Next slide. Now I want to share a bird's eye view, uh, looking southeast, where you can better see a comprehensive, our comprehensive housing solution. Our housing proposal maximizes housing units and affordability given constructability needs, the project's design guidelines, and funding availability. This restricts, our proposal restricts building heights and considers setbacks to mitigate shadow impacts on Franklin Square Park and includes a variety of housing types, all proposed to be income restricted. Next slide. PNC, Petrero Neighborhood Collective, proposed up to, proposes up to 513 units of affordable housing within four buildings dedicated to different types of income restriction to leverage known funding opportunities. PNC is partnering with the Mayor's Office of Housing um, MOHCD appreciates their commitment to this project as part of their larger goal of developing 82,000 housing units over the next 10 years. As PNC explores funding sources, the housing type may change to remain competitive, yet Petrero Neighborhood Collective is committed to maximizing housing affordability. Next slide. On commercial and retail program, uh, we are conducting market feasibility for commercial spaces. We are considering both traditional retail as well as potential community service and or business incubation spaces with an emphasis on locally based businesses to put racial equity in the forefront of creating community, wealth generating opportunities. We appreciate feedback provided from the community during these past seven months on recommended commercial uses, including community kitchens, cafes, libraries, and, and safe place for youth. The, this is an image of the podium of the housing. The podium not only provides structural integrity for the housing buildings, for the housing buildings above the bus yard, but also creates an invaluable benefit for all residents with new open space, as well as well documented, as it's well documented the social, health, and cultural benefits of open space in urban context. This also creates a green corridor that extends the green space from Franklin Square Park into the Petrero Yard. The amenities that we have on site include the podium as an asset for all residents of the, of the 513 units. Our team has thoughtfully identified a variety of shared amenities and thanks to the public's input over these past seven months in helping identify key priorities such as community gardening, fitness area, safe and secure tot lot, and quiet spaces. Additional amenities are proposed as part of the transportation demand management plan to support transportation needs of the residents. Now I want to start to show you some of the corners of the design. And this, we start with 17th Street and uh, Bryant. So this is an important corner that connects Franklin Square Park with the bus stop, as well as the bus stop uh, for the Bryant 27 line. At ground level, you can see, though I think it's a little bit blurry, but an employee entrance, an SFMTA employee entrance with proposed public restroom and retail opportunities here, as well as the, as I mentioned, public visibility into the Muni operations and the glass located on 17th Street. Above the ground level, for employees, there will be an employee outdoor space with over, that overlooks Franklin Square, Franklin Square Park. Additionally, as part of the city bike network, and I think you can see here some of the bike lanes, uh, it was a priority for, for Petrero Neighborhood Collective to explore possibilities of increasing both bike lane and pedestrian safety on 17th Street. We propose to do so with wider separated bike lanes that are protected by mountable curbs with extended bulb, bulb, out at, bulb outs at the intersection. Now we're on Mariposa in Hampshire. Here's where you can see the bus entrance and exit, which is specifically dedicated on Mariposa, no longer on 17th Street. This prioritizes pedestrian, bicycle, and rider safety by removing that 17th Street entrance. Based on our schematic designs, thorough analysis of bus movements confirms 
that the change to the change to entrance exit is safe and feasible for both 40 and 60 foot buses within the facility. Additionally, there is outdoor employee space on the mezzanine at the intersection of Mariposa and York Street, which may be a little hard to see on this screen, but it's there. Next slide. Now we're on Mariposa and Bryan Street, and this is a cohesive design between this. This shows a cohesive design between the bus yard and housing that prioritizes the integration into the neighborhood and creates movement in the facade through building articulation and shows the grid system. The final unit mix and product type is still being refined. Excellent. Lastly on design, a final, a final bird's eye view zoomed out to show more Franklin Square, to show Franklin Square to sh give a little bit more perspective of what the housing solution looks like. Um, before I turn this back over to the city team, I want to highlight two more important or two add color to some of the risk factors that Jonathan mentioned, interest rates and construction costs. So compared to the last 10 years, uh, and certainly over the past two years as we've more immediately felt, rates are elevated for a number of reasons, particularly with the Fed looking to combat high inflation. We hope and anticipate these rates can come down through, can, can come down through the process, though timing is uncertain. Next slide. And on escalation, in the current environment, construction demand, inflation, supply chain disruptions, and labor shortages are impacting construction costs escalation na nationally and is particularly felt in the Bay Area. Um, in closing, before I go, I want to again, again restate our appreciation in being selected as SFMTA's development partner. We continue to be excited in working with SFMTA and the wider city family to deliver this project. We appreciate the collaboration with the dedicated and diligent city team, particularly Jonathan Ruers, Kirsten McGarry, and Tim Kempf. And now I'll turn it back over to Jonathan. I, I did not pay him to thank us. You know, I, I just work here. Um, so I do want to talk because there's there's always talk on big projects like this, and, and we should discuss it, just kind of the project management and the project management oversight. So that is a, a follow-up um, request from the board. Uh, I do want to know the feedback that we got from this board has been integrated in the project since November. So I think some of the building integration issues kind of celebrating the bus yard. We've definitely done that. Some of the massing has changed based on feedback from this board. Um, I think Director Yukutiel, you would, I think we had more than like 20,000 square feet of commercial. You'll see that's really shrunk to more small and program spaces of like 1,200 square feet a piece. And we're continuing to kind of do that work to evaluate market conditions. So as we get feedback, we've made changes to the project and that's how these things should work. So again, it is an iterative process and um, to date it has been working well. So again, um, this project is part of a multi-departmental MOU. So I serve as building progress program manager for the city. So not only do we have a team of staff who are dedicated within the MTA, but we have staff from the Department of Public Works, the Mayor's Office of Economic and Workforce Development, the Mayor's Office of Housing, the City Planning Department, and the City Attorney's Office. And I call them my Supreme Court of Attorneys. Like these are, these are the people who are really looking out for the city and, and making it work. So it is a fully integrated project team that takes advantage of the internal technical knowledge that city employees bring to a project of this scale, like market and regulatory conditions, um, access to community, considering the political environment of a project that somebody from outside the region doesn't necessarily understand coming in and trying to do a project of this scale within San Francisco. What this allows us is to do rapid problem solving. It is again how 
in just under four years now, we have been able to take this project from a concept, get to near 100% schematic design, and have an EIR fully drafted, ready to be approved by the Planning Commission and the Board of Supervisors. We've gotten special legislation to use this project delivery process through the Board of Supervisors. We've released an RFQ and RFP and selected a developer team in four years. Um, and the people behind me, the, the team, um, they really get a lot of the credit for being able to achieve that. This is the group of people. There are 20 core team members who are working on this project within the city and county of San Francisco. I wanted their names on a slide because they deserve to be recognized for the work that they're doing. From the, the mayor's office of housing, like, you know, Robert is absolutely amazing. He's an absolute subject matter expert and he wants the housing to happen um, at this project. Carol Wong, Yadira, Sid on the city attorney team, you know, I very often, I have had talks with them in the rain about important decisions around the various agreements, getting each of their advice on how to, you know, take a next step or move it forward. Um, our, we have technical advisors both on the legal and on the technical side at Arup. So again, sometimes we need technical consultants to support and enhance our ability to do our work among city staff and give us an outside perspective and analysis. So Arup and Nossaman have been able to support us in doing that. And then Tim Kempf, um, our project manager at Public Works and Sean O'Brien supporting him. So Bonnie Jean Von Crow on outreach, just an amazing team of people um, who have been really dedicated to making this an example project for the city, um, of the city and across the city. So um, congratulations to all of them. On the um, oversight to date, so we are preparing to get an RFP out on the street for um, project management oversight for this project. Um, again, the, uh, the thought with the PMOC is that they would provide you an independent report on the state of the project overall, provide a report to me and Director Tumlin um, in areas where we could improve project delivery or maybe considering resources or management capacity um, which is pretty standard in a, in a PMOC. You have the general level of scope, happy to take any feedback on that now and at some future date, but we are preparing that to go out on the street and secure somebody to provide that um, independent um, review of the project to Director Tumlin, myself, and the MTA board. Um, I also am finally hiring a project director for this um, position. We got more than 40 applicants, and I think they're, they're pretty good, and I'm hoping to have that person on um, full-time by September. So that is on the hiring, and the team is happy to take any questions that you have. Director Ikudio. Thank you so much. <coughs> I'll start at the end. Um, so are you hiring a project director and a project managing team? Are they both necessary? Um, so the, the project management oversight consultant is meant to be independent of the project team and essentially give you a review of how the project team is doing and any improvements that could be made in the delivery of the project. And we're hiring that team just for the MTA board to get a report? Yes, how the MTA board, um, I, I can give you an estimate. I might guess that it might be $500,000 or less over the course of the project. Do we have the authority to just say like, you can give us a report and save that half a million dollars? This was a request from this board that we do this. So if you would like to withdraw the request, you may do so. I know, I'm, I mean, I, I feel like, again, we're, we are trying to save money. 
It would save us half a million dollars just to have a report from our own staff on a project that we're managing. I, for one, would be happy to save half a million dollars that way. So I just want to put that out there. Would we need to, like, would it require a vote? Yes. Uh, city attorney, um, what would be the process for that? So uh, this item has been uh, calendared as a presentation information item. And so you cannot take any action at this particular meeting uh, with respect to um, the, the contract that has been discussed. But you could direct staff to bring it back to you. But, but isn't this person, didn't you say that they're, you're hiring this team right now? We're preparing the RFP to go on the street to secure. But what so is the, our timeline? The RFP isn't out yet. Correct. It's not out yet. So, so how much time do we have to say, actually, we have a $100 million hole and this would save half a million dollars? Can this be a consent item that we hear at our next meeting? I mean, well. Or process. The, the no my recommendation to you is that you're getting this update, so you need to be satisfied that this project is being well managed. The FTA for any project of this scale would hire a PMOC of their own anyway to provide a similar role. So I think, you know. Wait, sorry, can you define your terms? What's the FTA? The, the Federal Transit Administration. And so they're already hiring their own PMOC? No, no, what they would do is, as part of a project of this scale, they would require that a PMOC be hired that would report to them. So are you saying that we have to hire this person and it's not just something that this board is asking us to do? I am saying that for a project of this scale, it is one of the best practices. But again, it is this board to decide as a matter of policy whether or not you, this board requested in November that we pursue this. So you may withdraw the request. Do you think we should, Director Tumlin? Uh, I think that we can take some feedback from all of you and potentially go and discuss alternative approaches and then come back to you for a potential action. I, I, think, I think probably the best way to do this is, um, uh, so the project director is meant to be our development director for the agency, so do a lot of the joint development work, plus this PDA agreement designates an MTA staff person to run the project. Kirsten McGarry has been filling in, so she is one of those people who are stressed managing a hundred and something people plus doing this um, when that person is hired i think we'll be at a quarter where i can give maybe a shorter update as we're getting ready to bring this to the board and you can let me know at that time if we should proceed with the rfp based on that update or not okay i'm just hearing we're hiring a project director a full-time project director who's going to be running right. this project yep and there's an additional layer of uh, project management that is going to be responsible for independently updating this board on how the project. Oversight, yes. And I guess I, ha I just want to register for when you come back mm -hmm. that I have enough trust in staff, also that we've learned from these large, complex uh, projects that if we're hiring a full-time project director that I feel empowered to give that person the ability to, to in, in addition, have the function of updating us on how it's going. Uh, so to me, I'm comfortable with that, but maybe we can bring that up as, a, as an item to vote on in, before the RFP goes out. Yeah. Great. Um, unless my colleagues have any issue with that. Uh, I only have two questions on um, the design. Uh, one is on the park that seems to be within the project. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that's something that, oh, before I do this, who, who is here from the, the non-MTA team that's actually going to be building the thing? Oh, you can stand. 
building? Yeah, building the thing, not MTA stuff. What? Okay. I just yeah. want to I just want to clarify for building we do not have a a, con, a general contractor on board. Okay. That is part of the process, but this is the development team that's PNC standing. Hi everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Really appreciate you. Thank you for sitting through two and a half hours of this <laughs> and allowing me a bio break in between. Um, I guess I just and and are you with the MTA? No, I'm with Plenary Americas and You're serving as the project manager for the collective. So let's take a step back. How are you feeling right now about this project? <laughs> Optimistic. Got in the weeds. We heard your presentation. This is ultimately a marriage, and 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 the wedding vows I think have been exchanged. The honeymoon's over. Mistaken. Yeah. Honeymoon. She's over. <laughs> How do you feel? It's been it's it's been seven months of collaboration with the SFMTA, with MOHCD, with all the city agencies. Um, I think. I mean, Jonathan gave the, the overall highlight in terms of where we are with schedule, where we are with process. So to say that there's a lot of work that's been done is, is correct. There's still a lot of work to do. And I think throughout that process, getting feedback from everyone, from the community, from yourselves, from, from everyone in the process, will help us secure our regulatory approvals and make this a successful project. There are still some questions that we're answering. There's still progress to be made. So today we're not done, but we are optimistic. We are energized. We're fully mobilized. I think, um, as evidenced by the various meetings and deliverables that PNC and the city have been exchanging over the past seven months, there's been a lot of work that has been done. So optimistic and energized to continue going. Okay. I think my greatest fear about, thank you for that, my greatest fear about this project is, is that all the layers of bureaucracy and process and the ad nauseum community outreach that's required to do anything bold in this city it will be so uh, expansive that we get to a point where the project doesn't just doesn't work anymore because the construction costs have gone too far up and something bad has happened, God forbid, and whoopsie, we missed our, our timeline. And so and this is happening. It's happening on a much smaller scale with com small commercial uh, spaces. I was on the phone last night with someone that wanted to open up a store and now they just can't, it doesn't work anymore. Their investors pulled out. And so that is my greatest fear. Mm -hmm. And so I guess this is maybe a both MTA and a plenary question like, when are we, when is our drop dead date? Like we've heard all of your feedback, we know what everyone wants, and now we're gonna, we're gonna do the thing. Like, you know what I mean? So over the past couple of months, as Chris has said, we've been getting feedback on the design because again, we're adding a very large building to a neighborhood for a century. Um, but this project is going forward with its regulatory approvals this fall and then we will go to the Board of Supervisors and it is still generally on the schedule to be completed with the project in 2027. So again, this is a very large project. We are on schedule and I've heard nothing yet today that will not tell me that we will not stick to the schedule of being complete by 2027 on this facility. Do you agree with that assessment? I, I agree with that assessment, yeah. I think we're on track to, to develop um, a number of things through the PD, through this pre-development phase, and I think it was it was one of these sessions probably prior to entering into the PDA phase, where I think it was a question asked, you know, you're not you're not entering into the project today or in November 2022. You're entering into a pre-development phase right. that gives this board, that gives other regulatory agencies the ability to well opt out or to make certain decisions along the process. So you continue to have and retain those rights. But in terms of the work that's being done, it is, it is a mountain of work that has already been done, but we're not, we're not yet at that peak. 
Great. And as I understand it, and for anyone listening, the idea is that you've, you've kind of agreed on all the big pieces of this so that midway through the project, we don't, the city doesn't muck around in it and make the whole thing cost 30% more and change the whole concept of it. Is that right? Well, there are, so the legislation we passed and the requirements of the project, first of all, that there can be no risk to the bus yard. The bus yard must be constructed. Mm. Um, sets what I would call guardrails in place that were made pretty clear to our regulatory bodies within the city. I mean, I think when we took the administrative draft of the EIR to the Planning Commission, there was no public comment. Like, no. there were no, so that, that, was, that was due, again, I would say this project, because of the outreach we've done, has mitigated a lot of those things that typically happen on the back end and cause the risk that you're talking about. So we have been, I showed the schedule today. It is very clear the steps we intend to take and in what schedule. And if people want to talk to us along the way, we will go to them. So we will give them the opportunity, but it does not mean we will change the schedule. Okay, so then just parroting what you said. So Outreach is supposed to be done by the fall then, because that's when you're going for your regulatory approvals. That outreach process is, is to be completed probably in the next month or two? Uh, so regulatory approvals in terms of EIR certification and in terms of entitlements are occurring in the fall, third you quarter this year. You would have to design for that, right? So within the pre-development phase, there are various performance milestones, some of which are, and I think Jonathan in his timeline showed this, um, There's 50 per, we're at 50% schematic design. We will progress that to 100% schematic design and in parallel continue outreach, continue entitlements, continue with the EIR certification. So all of those are happening not sequentially but in parallel. Okay, so, so just to put a fine point on it, 100% schematic design, when is that supposed to be completed? Uh, I think that's targeted for October. Okay, uh, October. so the fall. Mm -hmm. So then I only have a couple additions to that outreach. How about that? Uh, one is the park in the middle. Obviously beautiful. The first question that comes to mind is there happens to be a large, beautiful park right next to the development, and we have a housing crisis. So is it is that required? Do we have to have a park within the, or like a green space within? The outdoor space. Yeah, yeah. even though there is a park next door. There's certain development requirements, but do we need to have this specific park with these specific amenities? I think the answer is no. That's what. But do you have asking? the flexibility to build more housing in place of the internal green space if you wanted to? I, I think there's, so I think there's a lot of challenges there. One, I'll start with the open space is meant to complement Franklin Square Park. So for instance, we don't have a soccer field on there. It's meant to be an amenity space solely for the residents of that site to complement what's across the street, this beautiful, nice Franklin Square Park. Um, sorry, your second question was? Just uh, if you have the flexibility to say, hey, we actually want to build 50 more units and like, can you value engineer that out? I think you can always value engineer it, but the challenge that we have is trying to make sure that the housing can work based on these current assumptions. And the housing that we're providing, that we're proposing to provide is different product types. So we have senior housing, we have family housing, we have mm. workforce housing. What we're trying to do is respond to what we think the community is needing in terms of, you know, we're not just gonna build 500 studios. It's gonna be a mix of two bedrooms, three bedrooms. So we're trying to find what that sweet, sweet spot is to understand what you know, what those product types look like. But okay, I guess my reaction to it is we do have a once in a century chance to build real housing on this parcel, and I would like to maximize as much housing as we possibly can with that within what we believe the community, quote unquote, around it thinks should be built there. Because that community might change, there might be, it's gonna be 100 years, and mm -hmm. uh, we need to build housing in this city of ours, and so I just 
that was my reaction to that is yep. if we could build a hundred more units in that green space, there's a perfectly good park next door. So that's my feedback on that. Um, thank you for hearing it. My second is on the commercial spaces. Um, yeah, I guess my, my reaction to it is the future, in my opinion, of San Francisco ground floor commercial retail is in micro retail, micro spaces. It's just a hard environment. Yeah. Labor is expensive, rent's expensive. And I'm just seeing around the city areas that are flourishing are areas where first time, risk averse, uh, small business owners that want to put their name out there and hang, sh hang, hang their shingle up, it's much easier for them to do it in 1,000 square feet, 1,500 square feet. Mm -hmm. You're only getting to get, your, the pool just becomes so much smaller for five or 10,000 square feet. So I think as much as possible, if you can have the ground floor commercial be able to be subdivided or at least have that flexibility in there, I think that would go a long way towards having the kind of folks take on those spaces that we want to see open up small businesses in the city, in particular yeah. in this neighborhood. Uh, and the last thing is about um, um, I think that's it actually on design. Uh, and then the uh, commercial. Oh, that's it. That's all I have. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Director. Director Heminger. Thank you, Madam Chair, and I suppose I should begin by trying to provide some reassurance uh, to my colleague about the importance of hiring some kind of project management oversight. Um, Jonathan, it might be helpful as well to get your schedule slide back up on the screen. Now, you know, first of all, I, I think it's worth acknowledging that I believe that this board approved this path with the uh, PMO uh, by unanimous vote. Um, but obviously, circumstances can change and uh, votes can change. Um, in this case, uh, Jonathan, you indicated that if this were an FTA-funded project, we would be mm -hmm. required to have a PMO. It's not so we're not. Is that correct? This is not a federally funded project, so we're right. not under the regulations that would trigger it. But, but nonetheless, it is a I think it's a best practice yep. um, that I have seen uh, be valuable. Um, and it's not a knock on the staff to have somebody looking over their shoulder. I, I've always believed that more than one set of eyes on a problem is better than having just one. Um, and as you can see in the audience, we have a pretty formidable array of partners out there, uh, but they are coming to this project to achieve their own objectives, and I think we need to be uh, similarly armed. Um, so I do believe as well that whether it's 500,000 or less or more, uh, that we have a very good chance of making up that uh, cost in the benefits and savings that they could identify in delivering the project. So um, if we're going to consider the idea again at a future meeting, uh, that, that's fine with me, but I still think it's a good idea um, that we ought to pursue some kind of oversight um, consultant. And my question to you, ironically, Jonathan, was going to be, and I'll still ask it because um, I'm still interested, 
wouldn't it make more sense for that PMO to be hired a couple of steps before we have it depicted on this screen? Because we have a couple bites at the apple, it looks like, right mm -hmm. before we hire the PMO. One's on uh, the finance plan and the other is on the project agreements. So wouldn't it be better to have the PMO help advise us on those actions before we get to construction? Yeah, that, that's, a very, that's a, an excellent question. I think, so again, this is design, build, finance, maintain. So those agreements where you're actually getting the PMO-esque level of review is from our own city attorney, from Nossaman, who's an independent attorney, and then we have Arup, who does our independent financial review of the project and design review. So they essentially, while we have that whole city team and city staff, they're sort of serving as our independent PMO, and we get independent analysis on, you know, the agreements between us and the PNC team. So what we can do is certainly have them provide an independent recommendation and review that can be attached to the final calendar item for this board, but they're serving that function for this type of phase of work where we're negotiating the housing agreement, the financing agreement, the real estate agreements associated with this. The, the PMOC in the traditional sense as you and I understand it and what would be normally required for an FTA project is really around the construction. So what we would do is if we bring them in at the same time where PNC is essentially starting that sub-package review, that's where I think you get the value that you're talking about out of that particular consultant team at that phase of the project. Yeah, it, and look, I, I'm sympathetic to the point you're making because your point is, look, we've got some independence built into this process already. I, I, I guess one concern I've got about that is after several years of work here, uh, people are pretty invested in a way of looking at the project. So they may be independent, but they've also maybe got some tunnel vision going on about, you know, we're smart guys, we figured out what the best way to do this is, and that's the way we ought to move forward. And that maybe is one of the instances where you want to stop and say, wait, uh, is that really the right approach? Um, is there a different approach? Uh, that might be worth considering. Um, so look, if we are going to have a, a, a debate about this again uh, at a future meeting, it might make sense to include not only the question of whether we should have a PMO, but at what point should we engage sure. them. Yep. Um, so that, I would say to my uh, uh, dear colleague, is, uh, is my take on that subject. Um, Maybe one more bit of data on that. Uh, we would be, would we be hiring this uh, this uh, consultant from our operating budget or from a capital? It would expense? be from the project budget. Okay, yeah. so I, I think that's perhaps I hope uh, a little bit more reassurance that we're not talking about cutting a bus line to hire these guys, um, and we won't rescue the bus line if we don't. Um, my second question is about the housing uh, component of the project. And as I recall prior conversations about this uh, uh, proposal, uh, there was acknowledged the possibility that the housing would have to drop off. That, you know, we're a transportation agency, we got to replace this really old bus facility, mm -hmm. and that's job one. Um, and the housing is sort of icing on the cake, but it's not the cake. Um, 
is that still the is that still a fair reading of, of the project? I would say it is a fair reading of the process that we have laid out through the PDA that we have the ability to remove the housing if it poses an absolute risk to the bus facility, which if it comes to that through negotiations is it, and as we continue to iterate, we will, the agency and you as a board have the option to do that. We made that clear to the Board of Supervisors. We made it clear to all the partners. And it's part of the reason that we had this board approve the terms of the PDA before we awarded it. We wanted to make that very clear. So the process absolutely allows for that. That said, this is an MTA project. And of course, the MTA's interest will come first because it's our property. But this is also a project that's noted in the housing element that was adopted by the Mayor and Board of Supervisors in February. Housing is a priority for the city and for the mayor, and especially workforce housing. And so one of the components we have in and that we're actively working on is how can we make that workforce housing available to our employees that require it to provide the services that we want to provide. So today, the housing is still in the scope. The process allows for us to remove it if it puts the bus yard at risk. But right now, we have been managing and mitigating risks to keep it in scope. Well, and that raises the question of, and you're right, certainly, and I, I think uh, not only the Board of Supervisors, but this board uh, would like to see housing constructed, as Director Yakutio said, as much as we can, as we can fit in. Um, but what I, what I worry about is if that becomes the overriding consideration, mm -hmm. um, and we get to a point where we want to take it aside, um, that we may have some pretty powerful people who run our city saying, no, you don't. Um, and then that has a cascading effect on the affordability of the whole enchilada, right? So is that you what you're worried about? You should join our project team. And it is exactly what it is. It is part of the risk register that we are managing. And this has always been a challenge with the city and county of San Francisco. When there are multiple policy priorities, whose priority wins over others, and then when I can stop you to try to get mine, so be it with the schedule and the scope and the cost. And then we usually end up with what we end up with, which doesn't make everybody happy. What you noted is the current challenge. And, and I can say this much about it without getting into our active negotiations. The integration of housing infrastructure and industrial bus yard infrastructure has been a design challenge that I think we have largely overcome at a design scale. But that was hard. What is proving difficult is infrastructure finance and housing finance are extremely different. There is a path to fully fund the complete project the timing and the integration of how that works is a current project risk that we are managing to. And so when we come back to this board, we will give you the pros and cons and options with a recommendation. But again, today, based on all the risks we know about, the market risks, the housing finance and infrastructure finance issues, the design issues, which I think largely we've resolved, we are sustaining scope as it is today, and we're largely on schedule. When you say uh, that housing and infrastructure finance are different, um, can you be more specific about what you mean? I mean, in particular, yeah. 
this this deal is an availability payment structure, yep. right? So the developer puts money out to build and then gets money back uh, subject to maintaining the asset Correct. appropriately. Um, there's really no analog, is there, to housing unless it's the rental income that you can pledge against yeah, some you, kind you, of... Yeah, you're sort of, you're, you're yeah. hitting it. So the availability component is related to our operations and our infrastructure, right. the bus yard, which we call the BYC. The housing component needs to be completely independent of MTA finances or us putting money into that component. There's, there are components of joint infrastructure which we know exists, right? Like the podium that Chris talked about, right? Like we're building it and somebody's gonna go on top of it. That's something that we've been working through. Um, but housing finance is very dependent on multiple rounds of funding, where like in, in kind of the transportation world, you kind of go in, you get your new starts award, and then you get appropriations, but you know you got your award. With housing, you have to go in multiple times to build up the amount necessary to construct the project. Affordable, affordable housing. With affordable housing. And so we hadn't contemplated that when we essentially got married. That is something we're working through right now to try to figure out how to make that work. So again, we the scope, the 513 units are in the scope of the project. How that integration works is something we're actively discussing. Well, l let me make this my last uh, question. Um, and it's a question to our partner. Um, and it'd be helpful, Jonathan, again, if I could have the slide up with the uh, interest rates. So I'm gonna ask you about interest rates. <laughs> Get Sam up here. Um, Let's talk about interest rates. The, the question is, and I mean in crude form, the question is, uh, where on these charts are you guys <laughs> gonna be comfortable being? Uh, because the era of cheap money is over for now. Um, and I, I thought I heard you say in your presentation, you can certainly correct me if I've got it wrong, that uh, you, know, you were hopeful that these, these rates would be coming down. Is the success of this deal dependent on rates coming down from where they are? I think there's two components to that question from a housing standpoint and from a bus standpoint. So my comments were, I think, largely base interest rates that apply to both housing and, and bus yard. So to answer your question, I. I you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it's ambitious to assume interest rates go back down to the levels that were there in 2020 and 2021. I am, I am personally ambitious that the rates will come down, probably not to that level, but no, to say that the, for the bus yard, the interest rates are, the bus yard is contingent on interest rates dropping to a certain level, no. It becomes a, obviously higher interest rates means a higher cost of capital, but that right. is not, uh, I mean, that's still subject. I guess whatever the, whatever the outcome is there, it's the cost of capital for the SFMTA, for the city. So it's a question for the city is that it's more expensive today if interest rates are 2% higher than they were yesterday if 2% was lower, but that's not a contingent for the housing component, for the, for the bus yard component. On housing, that could be a different case, as Jonathan was alluding to. There are a number of different sources that are required, a number of different funding constraints that tie into housing. Each of the four housing components are treated as four different financings that can come online at different times. So when you look at a, when you look at a, a, a schedule like that, it really is figuring out when the right time is to hit financial close oh, to so go into the market. Oh, so is it possible that instead of building four globs of housing that we would build three or two? I, yeah, I think I think that's possible. Each each 
because four housing I mean, companies. they're each they're each tailored to a different slice of the market, right? They um, yes, workforce has its own funding sources, and family housing and senior housing have their own funding sources. But yes, they are still subject to different sources to be able to achieve that that that. That financing. And I'm sorry I didn't ask earlier, uh, but I don't think you need a slide. You got a good memory. Um, when does the housing decision get made about whether it's go or no go? Is that at financial close or earlier or what? So that that's that's a good one. Um, at so we're designing for flexibility. And that's all I will say on that subject. Um, we are going to entitle all of the housing, which allows for the ability to build all the housing that we've shown you today. Um, at financial close, there will be a timing conversation that we are still working through and can't answer in detail now because of the fluctuations we're seeing in the market. So we made some initial um, thoughts about how that would work. Market conditions have now turned that into a risk and challenge. And um, you might have come up with some creative ideas on how that might be resolved, but we're, we're negotiating some of those terms right now. But do we need to have some certainty or resolution on that question before we start building the bus yard? I mean, don't you have some construction issues that could be affected by which way that decision goes? The, the design allows for flexibility. So we are one of So you'll the, build the podium and you might not build something on top of it? That's an interesting idea and we are negotiating through that and designing options depending on how the market shakes out. But what we're trying to do is design it in a way that the housing is always possible to be constructed. Okay. And that could involve even essentially retrofitting it in, build the bus yard, and then five years later come back and build some housing on it? Maximum flexibility. Okay. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, thank you, Director. Um, Director Hinsey, do you have any questions? Yeah, you know, I don't think I have too much to add. My fellow colleagues, I think, spoke to, to all of my concerns regarding the uses, et cetera. I, I will weigh in on the, the PMO discussion, and I won't be too long since that's not really in our agenda scope for the day. Um, but I do, I agree with, I think, Director Hemingway that given our recent learnings on um, <clears throat> recent large capital projects, I think, um, some independent oversight on something that we could possibly have for another hundred years wouldn't hurt, but um, we can have that conversation at another meeting. But in terms of the design and, and the housing, I think um, Director Heminger and Director Heminger and you could have covered uh, what I was going to ask. Thank you, Director Hinsey. Director Yakutiel, I do see you in the queue. Yes, sorry, I remembered what that third um, piece of design feedback or I guess question I had and um, 
I wanted to make sure I asked it. And, and it was about the parking lot thing. That I think it was, there was a bunch of articles about all this housing and no parking lot. So I'm not saying that I think there should be one, but um, you said that you're kind of using also kind of the reactions to the project to help design the final schematic. So what kind of what was your reaction to that feedback publicly? What's our response to the 600 units of housing and no parking, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, so the feedback has been all over the place. Some have been uh, very vocal about having parking, um, been very vocal about the transportation demand management solutions that we're going to be proposing. Um, but it ranges. I, I think that the question that we have is we want to first align with the transit first policy that's in the city, as well as it becomes a question of cost is a factor. And we want to try to maximize the affordability and maximize housing on this site. It's a question of do we build, if, if the decision is can we build parking, do we build it at the cost of possibly increasing the cost for housing? There are already challenges for housing, as we mentioned, with um, interest rates and with um, construction escalation. So the goal for us has been to how do we maximize housing up to the 575 units that is allowed on the site. Um, but to answer your question directly, uh, we have received feedback from a wide range of we want parking to versus we want no parking. But we continue to, to emphasize the TDM plan that we're putting forward to, to try to mitigate against the, those concerns. I mean, in other, in other major dense cities, do they build, don't they build things like this without parking? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, there's evidence of other buildings that have solutions without parking in this city and nationally. Okay, um, and then the last question I had, uh, at 16th and Mission, there's that development, the affordable housing development, um, but because it took so long for them to get their money in order, oh, there was some kind of thing where there's a period of time that they have to get their financing, and all the financing has to line up, and if it doesn't all line up, it can't get built. And so years later, we have an, a vacant Walgreens and et cetera and so on, and it's terrible. And so one, are, have you all been talking, and I think it's actually also Meta, if I'm not mistaken, that's managing that project. Meta, are you here? Aren't you? Hi. Aren't you managing, is that, are you guys doing that one at Six in the Mission? Okay. 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 So well, it's not necessarily meta, but I know that like it there was an issue because it took too long to get it all matched up, and it's it made it take an extra two, I think, to three years just to get to this point where they can even find a developer. So uh, how are, are we? How do we avoid what's happened at 16th Mission on this project to make sure that we don't have this years-long delay? So that could happen, and that is one of the the project risks that we are working towards now and will be addressed um, in the final agreements that will come to the board, but those are terms that are being negotiated. I don't understand. So yes, that problem could occur and we are in active negotiations around that topic, so we cannot discuss them publicly. Okay. Is having our developer already in hand helping make that less likely to happen? Yes, because we, we know that's a potential problem, right. and we actively have meetings to talk about how we would mitigate it or what we would do or how we would um, design the project to assume that that could be a scenario. Okay. I I know it's also city-owned land now, that 16th Mission project, and this is city-owned land. We're mm -hmm. part of the city. So 
if there's any way we can make sure that we're talking to whatever office is running that project to make sure that MOHCD, same yeah. people. Yeah, and it's is that Eric? Uh, yeah, that's Eric. Okay, yep. so we're talking and we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure that we don't repeat that issue. Yep. Okay, thank you. We're having weekly meetings with MOHCD to talk about funding strategies for the housing. Great. Thank you, Director. Um, I do have a couple of questions, and thank you for your presentation, Jonathan and Mr. Arid. Um, I did, um, on the parking piece, um, I do know that this project falls within the Northeast Mission Parking Management Project, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure is is creating, is already baking in the parking solution there for us. Um, can you speak a little bit about how those two projects are speaking to one another? Yeah, the, that's a great question. So at our neighborhood working group, like this, this question has actively come up about how we're mostly around residential parking and then the number of people that will be added to this general area based on the existing parking capacity. So we had the entire parking team who are working on that project have a session with the neighborhood working group to talk about what they're doing. And, you know, Director Tumlin is free to chime in, but the position of the agency is we are managing parking capacity as we would in any other part of the city. So, you know, again, consistent with transit first and what the city wants to achieve with housing, the planning code does not require residential housing uh, parking in a project of this type. So again, sticking with transit first principles, they're not designed into the project. However, to manage parking capacity and demand as the MTA, we are working on the Northeast Mission um, parking management plan, plus there are other alternatives nearby where we think we can enter into partnerships where parking capacity exists. We need to find a way to make it accessible to the residents and the people of that neighborhood. So um, that is gonna be a unique and different process for us, but we are committed to, again, based on demand and requirements, try to meet the transportation needs of that community, both for the residents that will live in this building, plus the general neighborhood in which this facility will exist. And if you wanna add anything, Jeff, yeah. No, and I know that's a considerable factor for especially those um, workforce housing units and the affordable housing units. And I know the community has um, been fully engaged on that topic and coming up with solutions with our team. And so. Uh, it's great to hear that both teams are speaking to one another. Um, I did want to take um, a deep dive and drill down a bit more on the LBE plan. Um, if you could walk me through what the LBE plan is. Uh, so the LBE plan is one of the, um, well, it's a performance milestone within the pre-development phase. It's a plan that lays out how we're going to engage with local business and local hire policies uh, during the post pre-development phase, that LBE plan is still in draft form and is actually under review by SFMTA to approve before we put that forward. Having said that though, like a lot of things in this project, things are moving in parallel. So we're not, we're not pausing anything with LBE. However, that plan will help inform our approach for engaging with, with local business enterprises. But we have already started that engagement process. We are very focused on what those percentages could be for the project. Um, whether it's design, construction, facilities maintenance, um, as well as focusing on, on um, micro LBEs and, and um, the various types of LBEs there. And um, I did hear you um, call out the San Francisco Latino and Black Builders Association in your presentation. Um, and so I do want to understand a bit how are they involved in the 
creation of that plan? Are you engaging them before it goes public? Are you just wanting to understand what the yeah. outreach and engagement component is with that as you draft it? Yeah, I, I, I don't think we've engaged with them as part of drafting that LBE plan. They're, they're one of the important stakeholders that we would reach out to and con continue to reach out to as we evolve the, the LBE plan. But I don't know if any of my colleagues can speak to the engagement with them. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Daryl and Davis. I'm with DNA Communications, and I'm helping the project on the LBE engagement, uh, working very closely with the Latino and black contractors around making sure that their input is in the draft, at the final draft before it's completed, because I think it's really important to understand what their priorities are, what the goals are for the neighborhood, of small businesses and micro businesses in San Francisco and their participation. So we're working with uh, Anne Cervantes and Miguel Galarza, who are the chairs. Great, and, um, and I say this because I've, I've received considerable feedback from that group in particular um, and other micro LBEs, um, that they are seeking to be more engaged in the process. Um, I believe that right now they, I, I'm not sure who they're, they're communicating with, but um, there, there does seem to be a sense of a bit of a stalemate in terms of just being part of the, the, the drafting of the plan. Um, so I would highly encourage folks to, to nip that in the bud and, and to close that communication loop. Um, much of the outreach and engagement um, processes that we've done internally, um, we try to prioritize as much as possible to work with community as we draft plans so that we can get ahead of a lot of um, the miscommunications and things that then occur when that doesn't happen. So as much as we can get ahead of that, I would highly encourage the project team to do that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, um, we definitely are doing that. We have one meeting so far, and we're getting the draft back, and they will be weighing in during that process. So, you. so I hear a you. commitment from me to work with them, so I oh, appreciate yeah, that. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a small business owner here as well, so and an LBE, um, so I know how important it is to ensure the participation is there. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and I did also just want to concur with my colleague, um, Director Kudiel, on the, on the size of the commercial units. Um, as much as possible, as we can zone those for maximum flexibility as well, um, I think it's, you know, I'm not sure if like we're just going to give folks a shell um, when, they, when they operate there, but I, I think it's if we can anticipate the different types of uses of that space and design it accordingly, I think that would be really fundamental to our small business community. Um, it is a community right now that is struggling, and so um, adaptability is key um, for those folks to succeed. Um, okay. That's really good feedback. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so let's see. I think we can open this up for public comment. Is there any public comment on this item in the room? Um, thanks again, uh, Chair Kaina. Uh, Alita Dupree for the record. She and her. Um, I guess this is one of the things I came to this meeting for today. Um, really, first and foremost, I want the best bus yard uh, that we can have. Uh, 1915 is pretty old. Um, you know, Grand Central Terminal in New York City opened in 1913, so it gives you an idea. And so, really, first and foremost, it's about getting the best electrified 
bus yard we can that will have enough room to be able to store vehicles uh, for our future. Uh, we have to make sure that always comes first. And yes, housing is important. Uh, no one should have to worry about a, a place to live. Uh, but, but first and foremost, we, we have to get this bus yard done. And uh, there are other examples of transit facilities that have uh, housing on them. Uh, Pitkin Yard, uh, which is in New York City. It's a B division yard serving the A-Line has some housing that was built uh, on top part of it in the uh, early 1970s. And so uh, I think that we, we can do some housing, but I think we, that when we do get to the housing point, we should maximize the, the number of units of housing uh, because um, I don't want to be sleeping in the grass. No one should have to worry about sleeping in the grass. So we need to have housing built on the site. And uh, there, there are just too many cars uh, out, out there. I mean, cars are great when you get on uh, Interstate 5 and go 65 miles an hour. Uh, but we got too many cars in the city, so we want to build a transit-oriented development. But the bus yard must come first. Thank you. Thank you for your comment, Mr. Pree. Any other comments? Great. Um, Secretary Silva, can we open up for remote public comment? Yes, at this time we'll move to remote public comment, not to exceed a total time of 10 minutes. Members of the public wishing to comment should dial star 3 to enter the queue. Each speaker will have two minutes. Moderator for speaker. Speaker, could you repeat that? We couldn't hear you. Speaker, you've been unmuted. Hello? Go ahead. Hi. Any other comments? Hi, we're taking public uh, comment on number 13. Yes, at this time. Hello. Can I speak? Yes, you might want to mute uh, the sound behind you. Computer. Hi, my name is Nick Kalina. Uh, I just want to push micro LBE requirements on this project. It's very important that the local businesses here in San Francisco get a chance at this project. So we really need to make sure that we're pushing these local requirements. Thank you. Next speaker. Moderator, next I've speaker. I've been listening uh, to you, commissioners. Go ahead. And uh, I think a lot of the discussion that you have should be offline with some experts. You are allowed to go in circles. So if you look at your entire discussion, there's very little when it comes to uh, quality standards regarding housing. And uh, for someone to say that, you know, just because we have land, we need a lot of housing, uh, that statement is a foolish statement. 
We are dealing with climate change. Where are we going to get the water from? How are we going to cater to the energy, even though they are building a substation close by? What about uh, liquefaction and flooding? What the hell do you all know about the tanks that were there that portrayed this, that polluted the bay and polluted the land? And we don't know what abatement has to be done. Those are the things you have to be, be careful about before you talk about housing. 30 seconds. Uh, if you want to know anything about housing, there are various ways of dealing with housing now. Not design built is, is like primitive. There are different types of techniques now to build housing. Fabricated models that are available that can save you millions of dollars. But you need leadership. There's no leadership in this MTA. Thank you, your time is up. We have no additional speakers. Thank you, Secretary Silva. Um, we will now close this item. Since there is no, this was an informational item, we will not take any action on this item. Um, thank you, colleagues, staff, and members of the public. We are now adjourned. The next meeting will be June 30th, July, and July 18th. Thank you.